You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Check out The Captain's Table, Saturdays on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This isn't like any procedure that we've ever done before. Well, that's why I'm here, Doc. Your facial muscles, tendons, bone structure, everything. It was destroyed. Beaver has many faces. You look fantastic, brother. Yes. Darkness has many allies. This deal is going down tonight. Raise your army. But there is only one who punishes them all. This is just the beginning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's play a game. Go be with you, Frank. Sometimes I'd like to get my hands on God. FBI, drop your weapon! You're fighting a war. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the co-host with the most, Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, killing is my business, and business is good. Also back with us this week is the host of the Proudly Resents podcast, Mr. Adam Spiegelman. Call me Chainsaw. This week we're looking at the 2008 Marvel movie, Punisher Warzone. Originally introduced in 1974, The Punisher has been the subject of several comic series and a trio of film adaptations. The earliest is the 1989 film starring Dolph Lundgren. The film pits the Mad Dog Vigilante against Billy and Jim Russo, two crazed criminals who are better known as Jigsaw and Looney Bin Jim. Just don't say that in front of them. The Punisher fights the bad guys and saves the day in a beautiful exercise in ultraviolence. So Adam, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Punisher Warzone and what did you think? Honestly, the first time I saw it was uh, last night and a little bit this morning. You had asked me to do this movie with you guys and... I've seen I've seen the second version of Punisher with uh, Thomas Jane in the theater. I felt like I was tricked because I saw a really good clip of it on TV of a, a fight where they go through three bathrooms. And I was like, it's going to be amazing. And then um, so when this came out in 2008, I was like, I'm not going to be fooled again. But uh, it was a great film. This is just a fun. Oh, my God. I can't believe that just happened type of action film. Yeah, this is probably the most insane um, Marvel movie uh, that you can imagine. I had not seen this one. As a matter of fact, I stayed away from both the Dolph Lundgren film because he didn't have the skull on his chest in the video box and also the Thomas Jane film. And, um, so this is my first time seeing a Punisher film. It's more faithful. I think, uh, this story to the comics. Cause I grew up reading the comics. I got into comics 91, 92. And that was when actually, uh, I believe it was Punisher Warzone or War Journal, I can't remember which, as a series had come out at that time. And it was sort of a reboot of the character and things like that. And I've always been uh, a fan of 
this character for some reason. I think it's probably because of the the crime film aspect, maybe a film noir aspect, and maybe um, even a connection to another comic book character that I really like. Uh, although they're not in the same universe, which I'll talk about later. But as for this, yeah, uh, the only thing I can explain to people who haven't seen this film is it's a very wet film. And what I mean by that is, is if you have a problem with viscera and blood, don't watch it. Yeah, this is the kind of comic that would make the comics code really go nuts. I mean, the Punisher comic and the Punisher movie, Punisher Warzone movie, so ultraviolent. I absolutely love it. I had seen the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. I'd seen the Thomas Jane Punisher. I really just wasn't that impressed with either one of them. Of the two, I would go back to the Dolph Lundgren more than either one of them. Now, I know, Adam, you're a big fan of John Travolta, but I just did not see him being a very good opponent to the Punisher. So I had a little bit of problem with that. And just Thomas Jane, I like him a lot kind of as a person, but as an actor, I really haven't seen him shine as much as I would like him to. I kind of got to know him through Deep Blue Sea, which I thought was just a hunk of garbage. Uh, he always reminds me of like the light version, L-I-T-E, of Christopher Lambert for some reason. Just something about his facial features. I keep waiting for him to do that <laughs> kind of laugh of Christopher Lambert. And just as a character, as the Punisher, he doesn't have the weight that I would like to see. He isn't as stocky and as built as I always pictured the Punisher to be. And I know that's something like, oh, well, you know, you should be able to cast whoever as superheroes. They don't need to look exactly like they do in the comic. I mean, you can cast a black guy as Johnny Storm. It really shouldn't matter. But just he seemed too scrawny to be the Punisher and just not the badass that I would really like to see. Punisher Warzone, though, oh my god. I My jaw was on the floor pretty much from the beginning, and then there's one scene in particular where it was just like, that's it. I am in love with this movie, and we'll definitely talk about that as we go along. So I guess maybe we should talk a little bit more about the plot as far as... There's a lot of... Uh, ins and outs here we kind of start with some um there's some double crossings going on including an undercover cop who's working with the bad guy gang for lack of a better term and we kind of start with them and they seem to have a shipment coming in pretty soon of some what were they calling it uh, organic materials throughout this and we we're not really sure exactly what's coming in but we know something bad is about to happen and that crime is going to spike in whatever city we're in which i just assume is new york though it's like this kind of candy-colored version of New York. Yeah, basically the Punisher to me has always felt like an East Coast New York because there's so much stuff with the mob, like all through the comics and even with this film. So I always seem to equate the mafia with with New York, although, you know, Al Capone was in Chicago. It just feels like New York. Well, I guess, too, since I always see him versus Spider-Man and Daredevil, that I know they're kind of treading the same territory. In the city, the location, at least the, the exterior stock footage they bought was New York. You know, they showed New York City, the skyline from above, from a helicopter shot. And then when they went to the um, subways, it was not a New York subway. He walked by a sign that looked like a New York subway sign, so I was still fooled. But then he went down, it looked like something out of the movie Subway with Christopher Lambert. Like, it looked, you know, a lot of neon lights and looked like probably Toronto or wherever they sh actually shot it. But I felt like they tried to make it New York, and, 
and with Dominic West's offensive Jersey accent, I mean, as the people say offensive Southern accents, and I don't get it because I never lived down South, but as a native New Jersey guy, yeah, that was just awful. I mean, he's a great actor, but <laughs> that was more over the top than his his face or his look. You know, that was so sticky. But um, but yeah, that that was in New Jersey. That was uh, yeah, that was the New Jersey sub the suburb of New York called Stereotypica. Everything is kind of over the top in here. I felt like all the characterizations, but it fits like in terms of the way the uh, the action scenes are. And things like that. I mean, it really is a live-action cartoon, and it's big and it's broad. The um, the the only thing that's really understated to a certain extent is the Punisher himself. I feel that you know he is a little more subdued compared to the uh, Bizarro world that we're working in. It almost feels more like we're dealing with uh, Batman villains. Yeah, I can totally see Looney Bin Jim being a resident of Arkham. You know, it does have that kind of thing, and the way that jigsaw when he finally becomes jigsaw i mean really when dominic west becomes jigsaw goes from being billy to jigsaw i mean that scene of his revelation and everything so echoed the revelation of the joker from the first batman film i mean they shot it differently and everything but of course the whole idea of the unbandaging and all this there was a little dark passage going on for me as well but i really was seeing the Joker there. And I was waiting for him to, you know, take the mirror and smash it and start laughing and everything. But I liked the way that they resolve the scene and especially the one gangster who just loses his lunch when he sees how horrible Jigsaw looks. And I never caught the line before where the doctor says something about using like horse skin when he puts them <laughs> back together. His face is just a hodgepodge of different skins sewn together. It is terrible. It definitely has that Leatherface look to a certain extent. Yeah, that looked like Leatherface. And the, the rest of it felt to me like Dick, the movie Dick Tracy. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, like the, the over-the-top makeup. But at least in this film, you knew it was supposed to be over-the-top makeup. I mean, he, you know, he looks ridiculous. And him becoming crazy about it, I, I thought that worked even better than the Joker, the Jack Nicholson Joker. Like, you know, he couldn't take the way he looks, so now he really needs to get revenge. And he needs the money, which I thought they just had two motivations going for them to kill everybody i was glad that this was not an origin story like we've seen the origin now if you've watched these punisher films this would be this is the third one right and so thank god we didn't get another origin we just start with the punisher being the punisher and we get some backstory to him we start with some badass action holy shit (laughs) yeah those those gangsters i was talking about earlier Oh, wow. It is so nice. This whole thing where just there's this bloodbath at this dinner and the way that they introduce the Punisher by cutting the lights in this room. And you've got the most stereotypical Italian gangster ever <laughs> leading this thing. I mean, he's like, oh, Buffon, cool. Oh, what's going on? And he's got the whole like spaghetti bender kind of thing going like. Probably going up to the ragheads in Queens. Crystal's guaranteed it's leaving the city. We don't touch that kind of shit. In case your memory's going along with the rest of your bodily functions, you might like to remember, I'm the top earner around here. I'm not stupid. Stupido? You're as shit out of crazy as your brother, Looney Binajim. When the lights go out, he yells, Kakatsavai, which means, what the fuck? And next thing you know, man, out of the dark, this fucking road flare goes off, and there's the Punisher standing there. And then we get this nice 
long shot of him. We get a close-up of the flare with the Punisher symbol on the shirt and everything, which is kind of toned down in this film, and I kind of like that. He's not he's not wearing a uniform like you know in uh, in other films, and then his face, and he's just so fucking stoic. And I love that our our Punisher in this film. He doesn't even say anything for like the first. I think it's like twenty five minutes of the film. Ray Stevenson plays it so well and then it just becomes this violent explosion i counted like eight people dying within about eight seconds and it was glorious the punisher logo is used more to scare us i think to show how scary he is than some kind of comic book symbol like it it almost kind of rises up you know we see it comes up and it's like oh this is a bad motherfucker this is going to be scary and then we don't see it really the rest of the film but yeah, that's just a moment just to freak everyone out. I, I thought it was great. That table scene makes the table scene in Kill Bill look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, you get you get the <laughs> beheading, but then he just like starts carving into everybody's heads, slicing necks, and then the uh, sort of the piece de resistance here is where he hangs upside down from the chandelier and does this kind of like you know, windmill kind of thing, just mowing down folks as they come into the room. I mean, it must be, what, 30, 40 people mowed down in like a minute and a half, two minutes? And that beautiful shot from underneath the chandelier as he's spinning in slow motion and those shells are just falling from his guns and everything. Just, I mean, there's just a poetry to this violence. This is like the closest that we're going to get to like a John Woo violence fest. You know, this is like, Really, so much of this movie takes me back to the glory days of Hong Kong cinema. And there are certain scenes, certain things that just really remind me of this. I mean, I was reminded a lot of like the tea house scene in Hard Boiled. Actually, the one thing, too, that I thought of was there was that piece of shit movie with Kurt Russell and Kevin Costner called 3,000 Miles to Graceland or From Graceland. Horrible, horrible movie. But there's one scene where Ice-T, of all people, comes flying into this room, hanging upside down, shooting uh, machine guns. And I was like, okay, that was the only good part of the film. And it was like, take that times 100, and now you're starting to talk about Punisher Warzone. There's so many. Yeah, the John Woo films, right? That's definitely. But the difference, I felt like, is um, it stopped for a minute. Like, there was great scenes, but then there was just. Some of those Hong Kong films, this nonstop, and you just keep... And movies now, like the new Terminator or the new Mad Max, they just keep hitting you until the movie's over. And this, you know, the exposition was good and and welcome. Yeah, it was nice to have some breathing moments in here. And it wasn't just like, here's another set piece, now we'll give you 10 minutes of dialogue, and then here's another set piece. It really flowed together very well, and it told... A good story. I mean, this really did, you know, what you were talking about, Rob, as far as, you know, it has like kind of like almost like a mystery to it and just the way that the plot is put together. It doesn't necessarily feel like this is just, you know, a comic book come to life. There's definitely more to this story, not to put down comic books or anything. Let's talk a little bit about Looney Ben Jim. His name is James, not Looney Ben Jim, not LBJ, James. Because it's shortly after this bloodbath that we have 
the introduction of Jigsaw now, and one of the first things that he wants to do, I think he <laughs> he puts it in order as far as I want to get my money back, and I want to kill Castle. And in order to do that, Castle being Frank Castle, who is the Punisher, sorry, I didn't say that before. In order to do that, he wants to get his brother out. He wants to get Looney Bin Jim out of the joint. Looney Bin Jim, played by Doug Hutchinson, who, for me, will always be Victor Toombs from the X-Files, but he was also super great as, what was his name, Percy from the Green Mile. Very, very underrated guy. Doug Hutchinson, I think he does such a good job as Looney Ben Jim, just adding this extra chaos to an already crazy mix of stuff. His introduction, his little line in there about Yummy, yummy, yummy in my tummy, tummy. Wonderful stuff when he is about to disembowel and basically eat the kidneys of the orderly at the mental hospital who's been stealing his applesauce. So he's about to get the applesauce back and talks about how uh, kidneys and applesauce are a uh, a delicacy. It's, it's weird to introduce a character that late in the film, like that important of a character, but it really like it makes it more. It brings up the stakes so much because you're just like. All right, there's these three mafia guys left, and they're going to try to kill Castle, and they can't because Castle's our hero. And then they bring in Looney Bin Jim. You're like, holy shit, this guy's. N- there's no way, Ca- you know, Castle, go home. There's no way you're going to win. And Castle's got his little support team. You know, he's got Micro, who's played by Wayne Knight, and he's got the other guy. I'm trying to remember what his name is. It's um, the the one guy who used to be a criminal, but now he's trying to get on the road to the straight and narrow, which, which I find very interesting because in Castle's world, everything is black or white, kind of like his uniform. You know, everything is you're a good guy or you're a bad guy. Good guys. They get to live, and the bad guys need to be punished. And when it comes to somebody who is a reformed criminal, it really puts him in this weird spot. And I like how they kind of have this relationship where he's not really sure about this guy through most of the film and slowly begins to kind of accept him and really kind of fleshes him out a little bit. Him being the Punisher fleshes him out more as a character and really what we get with his character, you know, he's he's not that dynamic of a character. He's a badass at the beginning. He's a badass at the end. But as we go through this, he's being more humanized through different things, through this character's relationship with him, through his accidental shooting of an undercover cop. Again, kind of taking us back to Hard Boiled, which was, you know, big motivator in, in that film, that, that tea house scene, Chow Yun-Fat kills this undercover cop and just really puts the spin on his head. So it's nice that we get this and like him basically trying to become more of a person throughout the film. That made it the movie. Yeah. Give it a whole new dynamic. Cause he's, we were supposed to think, well, he only kills bad guys. So that's great. Once he kills the undercover cop, which, you know, obviously he had no idea the guy was just walking out of the bathroom. And again, why is the bathroom so high up in the air? <laughs> he climbs all these scaffoldings to go to the catwalk, and he's like 20 feet, 30 you know, stories up in the air. And this guy walks out of the bathroom from the sky. Like I, I would be suspicious as well. I think that was a good shooting. I think that was fine. He shouldn't feel guilty. And he didn't wash his hands. If you watch carefully, the guy just walked right out of the bathroom. You hear flush and the door open. So you know the guy didn't wash his hands. Dirty man. A dirty cop, but not in that way. I like that relationship that Castle has with the police as well. The the Dash Maiha character, as this policeman who's the only guy on the 
the Punisher task force, who is basically the Punisher's biggest fan. And it took me, actually, I think the first time I watched the movie, it, for some reason it didn't click for me that he was a, a policeman. I think it was because his partner at the beginning basically has to cold cock himself to kind of cover that he gave Castle some information. And the Dash character, he asks his own partner, can I take your statement? For some reason, he reminded me of a reporter. And I think in any other film, he would have been that kind of nosy reporter character. But it was good that he had the in as a cop and just he had this kind of more privileged relationship with the police in that manner. So I, he seems to be this kind of outsider. And I mean, he's he's literally an outsider in his own police station he works down in the basement where nobody wants to see him keep him away from everybody he's the guy that has the shit job of trying to catalog all of castle's murders basically and i'd love that one line about yeah where this where's the castle file and it's like oh it's not a file it's like the, it's the whole room and just those shots of all the cabinets of all <laughs> and you know every single one is just stuffed to the gills with another dead body that has taken a bullet from castle a bullet a knife whatever until he accidentally kills a cop they are all on his side all the cops i feel like so it was just so weird to have somebody investigate him it's more like he was just cataloging it but i felt like that character kind of churned from like the ia nosy guy who wants to take down castle to a fan of castle to you know to a documentarian to his partner, his secret partner. And it, it felt weird because the police, you didn't know where they, they stood on him. You know, at first you thought the cop gives him his car and gives him information where, where he should go. But then they're pissed later on. They want to catch They just think he's a joke. I, it was just kind of weird. They weren't, you would think that all the police were pro-Castle. But um, I, I felt at one point they weren't, even, even nothing to do with killing the cop. You know, it just seemed kind of inconsistent. Mm-hmm. In between shootouts and uh, and punching people's face off and stuff like that, the movie was totally unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was my issue, but uh, it's the little things. What well, was good too that we had the FBI come in, so we have even more outsiders. And I, speaking of the the face punching scene, again, I was totally reminded of another Hong Kong film. I was reminded of uh, what was it, the story of Ricky when Castle comes in at one point and just puts his face through a guy's head. One of the best things ever. But (laughs) I loved when the FBI guy is trying to then cuff and arrest the the guy who just got his face punched through, his father, and uh, is about to take him out. And Castle just puts, you know, two in his skull or whatever. And just the cops or the FBI guy's reaction. I'm calling this in. Put your hands behind your back. That was great. And that the FBI guy gives a shit. He wants to be a clean, you know, arrest everyone. And the cops are, in this case, like the TV show Gotham, are all corrupt and just, you know, want somebody else to do the work for him. Yeah, really, they're now on the outside. I mean, Castle's always been an outsider to everything especially the police force, you know, he takes justice into his own hands. And then we have 
this whole idea of you know the the one character, the Dash Maya character, who's on the outside and he's able to you know kind of work that way and work with the Punisher, and then having the FBI guy as this no, another outside force. Yeah, because everybody everybody is dirty in this film in some way, and it's just a matter of trying to navigate as much as you can along that straight and narrow. I was talking about that moment earlier when I lost my shit and this movie just became utterly fucking genius for me. You guys can probably guess, but it's the moment when the parkour guy gets the surface-to-air missile through him. <laughs> that was, Yeah, that was a more ridiculous scene. Because the parkour, he's like, oh, it's parkour. And then it's almost like they're thinking, well, how can we kill these people? What if? We, all right, how would you kill a parkour guy? And it would come up with 20 things. Take the best one. All right, now let's write in a parkour character just so we can kill him. You know, it, was, it seemed like they were having so much fun with ridiculous ways to, to kill people. Like they had a list and they had to check them off, which is great. And this is I'm saying this is a good thing about the film. Got to collect them all. That was the moment where I honestly was sitting home the first time and said, we have to rewind that. You know, I want to see that. And I probably watched that little bit maybe 10, 20 times just because it is so goddamn funny. These guys, these parkour guys are just, they think they're such badasses throughout the, they're part of the movie and just them like hooting and hollering and this beautiful slow-mo scene of them jumping from roof to roof. And that missile just comes out of nowhere and takes out that second guy. Oh man. Just it, like I said, that was the moment where I knew that this movie was for me. <laughs> it was true love. You know, one of those rewind scenes like that for me when I was a kid, when I first saw it on VHS, was RoboCop. And I guess it would be Emil, the, the uh, melting man, at the uh, at the, <laughs> at the uh, factory there. And he gets hit by the van. That was one that my friends and I would rewind and go, watch it get hit by the van. Bam, bam, bam. It was like, yeah, it's kind of kind of gross. But it was still fun for some reason because we're sick. The way he just kind of liquefies. Right. They have to turn on the uh, uh, the windshield wipers after they hit them. Yeah. What do you guys think as far as that uh, recruiting scene with uh, L- Looney Ben Jim, who they refer to as LBJ in one point, Looney Ben Jim and Jigsaw going around and trying to recruit all of the bad guys of New York? I was kind of reminded a little bit of the uh, when um, Hedley Lamar tries to get all the bad guys to take out the fine people of Rock Ridge from Blazing Saddles, but there was just a little bit more to it than that for me. It seemed like they were just looking for more, yeah, a more body count because we've run out of people. And then I just love that he's wearing this kind of faux general's outfit all of a sudden because you know he's already over the top. He's, he's got this jigsaw face that he calls himself jigsaw, and his brother's crazy. But so just to make himself look even crazier, he looks like you know some kind of dictator or some kind of general, and he gets all these people. And it reminded me of uh, Warriors, where there's all these different gangs of New York. You know, together, one place. And the baseball bat kind of reminded me as well. The baseball furies would not be out of place in this movie. No, no. and, and not, you could, sorry, So you have to balance that this is supposed to be as realistic and dark and, and fucked up as possible. But Jigsaw looks like a Dick Tracy character. So how do you balance the two? So he's just like a crazy. It's just like the Joker. It just drove him crazy. So you kind of accept everything he does. So everything in his world is, is nutso. But you're like... Well, I guess the guy had his face 
it's shards with glass, so uh, it's it's normal. I don't know, it, yeah, <laughs> you know, but yeah, that that was fun because it's like, oh, good, more people for for a castle to kill. Yeah, and different ethnicities, you know, any kind you want, all any different kind of man. For for most of the film, it was like, how many different white men can he kill? You know, because it was all that's the whole film, and then. They're like, let's just, vari- just do a variety of different people. He- he'll kill anybody. It was kind of like Skittles, you know, where you, you got the pack <laughs> and it's all different colors and flavors of the rainbow of death. It's wonderful. It made for a great finale because, again, you, you don't know what they ran out of people. So that was that was awesome. At least it's not like the same six goons coming in and then they give them like a bad mustache and then they come in again and give them a different hat to wear or something. Here, put on sunglasses. Same six guys. <laughs> right, right. Or a dress or something. But it, it did seem like a different – the movie kept changing, you know, or it was like a cartoon. It was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon when Jigsaw came in. He's like, oh, I'm going to try to get him this way. I'm going to try to get him that way. And then Bugs Bunny just kills everybody. I could totally see Frank Castle coming in with like the big round black bomb with the <laughs> long uh, the long fuse coming in. I mean like, yeah, here, hold bomb. this for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody goes to shoot him. And he puts his finger in the in the barrel of the gun, and it blows backwards into the guy's face. <laughs> right. They they could have done if the movie was any longer. Maybe it's in the director's cut. They did that. I hope you asked the director about that. There is a scene they cut out where he's cutting uh, Jigsaw's hair, and he says, "Monsters live such interesting lives." No, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. And you were talking before, uh, Rob, about it being very wet, and like I just felt like it just rained. In every scene, I don't know if they did that to make it look more spooky or something, but uh, we got there just a day after it rained everywhere. What's well, kind of it's like that city from Seven where it's raining all the time. This is what happens that next the day. Next day, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's over. I just, I just meant wet in terms of viscera, just like the amount of blood and like exploding heads and various other things. So, like, if you're squeamish about that stuff in a, in a film, yeah. Um, I'm squeamish about water. You know, yeah, exactly. Good, worried about people slipping. It's probably not good for the kids. Like, you don't want to show this to, I don't know, like a six-year-old or something. No. Yeah, it's... No. no I, I saw Ted 2 the other day, and a lot of the audience was was kids. And it wasn't just like I couldn't find a babysitter, so I brought my four-year-old. There was like nine-year-olds, six-year-olds, which made the dirty parts even funnier. Because you're like, oh, this is really awkward. <laughs> oh, this is really awful. Hey, I'm so glad I'm not that parent who made that mistake. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with director Lexi Alexander, as well as one with the writer Jerry Conway, the man who actually created The Punisher, after these brief messages. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Join the geek revolution and save the galaxy. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Want to know more? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Listen to Weeby Geeks podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or online at WeebyGeeks.net. Weeby Geeks, your voice for the geek revolution. Want to know more? You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. 
Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. What is point fighting? You know, it's I'm not even sure if American call it that now. Um, it's basically um, it's karate, but you it's like full contact karate. So they stop you after each point you make. Um, so the difference is the traditional karate, like nobody touches the other person in a fight. Well, in point fighting, you actually fully punch, but you have this gear on like clubs and headgear and footgear. But the difference between coin fighting and say like um, full contact karate or kickboxing is that nobody stops you for the entire round in those. So it's just like, you know, a really kind of a type of discipline within the same sport. How did you get into that? I started traditional in judo and uh, karate, and um, then I um, I think there was one studio that opened up, one dojo that had this like new thing that we in Germany called kickboxing. And so I thought, oh, this is much more interesting. People actually hit each other. <laughs> and so I went, and um, I was pretty good at it and started winning um, tournaments right away. And so uh, I stuck with it. When did you make the move from Germany over to the United States? Well, what happened is I was, what you call, on the circuit, um, with, like fighting tournaments with a certain sponsored team. And, of course, the Americans always had some of the greatest tournaments. They have, like, the U.S. Open and the Battle of Atlanta. And um, so you kind of your goal is, other than fighting certain world championships and European chips, to make it to one of these tournaments. Um, so I did. I went to the Battle of Atlanta and I won, I think, like the Grand Championship or something like that. And at the same time, I was while I was on that trip, I was meeting a lot of famous martial artists. And then three of those said to me they would sponsor my green card, which was a thing that they did for many um, martial artists at the time. And so actually one of the people was Chuck Norris. 
And he also brought in the Machado brothers. So it was a weird thing where, you know, martial artists kind of, uh, like if you're a tennis player, you don't worry, you know, who sponsors your cream cut. You kind of, the, the thing about it is you know that there's some great people in the sport and nobody makes any money. So it just came naturally because I think they probably assumed that everybody who is a martial artist wants to somehow go to Hollywood, which is true because, you know, you can get into stunts. And at the time, B-movies were still very hip, like the kind of B-martial arts movies, Sharklaw, Van Damme was big. And so that's, I think, the most you can really achieve in our sport unless you use it for, like, you know, uh, I don't know, um, law enforcement or something like that. But you weren't content to just do stunts. You started studying directing as well. Jack Norris not only sponsored my green card, but when I I was on a set visit on Walker, Texas Ranger, he said, you know, you should go to this acting school in Santa Monica. And I think the idea was like for me to become like a female shark girl and them. It's just that I don't take to acting at all. The idea of me standing around and waiting until somebody tells me what to do is <laughs> not my thing whatsoever. Um, and also, you know, there's a whole other side to it for women where, you know, they had, especially in that time, it was time of the Alan McBeal world, and everybody had to be waiver thin, which totally didn't fit with my, I wanted to be an athlete, you know, and not be anorexic, you know. Um, and so I, I just hated that whole world. But I wanted to obviously stay in Hollywood because I did like storytelling, you know, even back when I was a kid in school. And so I said, well, what else is there to do? And stunts I really only did to make money to go and um, afford to go to some film school classes and to um, get to make my first short film. Because stunts, you can also not do that long as a woman. Because we have to fall upstairs without any clothes on. The guys always get a million things to put on their body to protect themselves. And, and it's always like you come on set and the actress you're doubling, and, you know, for like the three flight stairs you have to roll down is wearing like nothing. You, like you can barely put, you can't, on most stunts women won't be able to put any protection and padding under their clothes. What are some of the things that we might have seen you in? You know, one of my longer gigs, and I think it was my first one that people now on the internet always make fun of, is I was Princess Katana in the Mortal Kombat Live Tour that premiered at uh, Radio City Music Hall. <laughs> and I traveled with that for a while. Um, I was in um, in that uh, movie, uh, that Batman movie from Joel Shoemaker. Uh, what was it called? Batman and Robin? There was a scene there where... Uh, where uh, it was called the Gao scene, and Uma Thurman walks into this swimming pool, and there's these Gao's, and they have these whip chains. And um, so I was cast as, you know, basically a stunt actor. And the best part about that was is that I basically had to teach the other guys mostly how to do the whip chain, because some of the guys that they hired were just stuntmen that didn't know the whip chain. And then, like, you know, halfway down the shoot, Joel Schumacher decides to replace me with a guy. It was funny because you couldn't, you couldn't even know who was a woman and who was a guy. Like, the, the makeup, I don't know if, you, if you've seen the movie or remember that scene, like, the makeup and the clothing, it was impossible to tell who is a woman and who is a guy. And I was the best one with the witching, so to this day I'm convinced that the old 
the issue I had, like he made all of us wear these um, um, contact lenses because they put stuff in our eyes that made our eyes glow in black light. And I have to say, I was the one who had the most difficulty getting those things in. I don't know what that was. I just always had an issue with, you know, things in my eyes. And so maybe I, I was just costing them too much time or something. You were talking about some of your short films. Was your sh- first short film Johnny Flinton? You know, I did a couple of others that, um, you know, I basically, like, I mean, I was practicing on them, and I'm hoping they destroyed somewhere, because, I mean, they, they, I remember the first stuff that I started testing out how this works, you know, I was really, really bad. I guess other people were bad in their first endeavors, but it took me a couple of tries to understand, like, the difference between... You know, okay, this is going to look like, you know, uh, a movie you made on vacation with your family camera, and this is the difference to it, you know. Were you a big comics fan before The Punisher came about? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I was just writing about that to the French magazine who, you know, asked me to answer some questions about Marvel. And I was just thinking about that because I always have been very honest about that, and that... I repeatedly said to everybody, my agents, when they first came to me with Punisher, and even the, I remember in the first meeting with Lionsgate and Marvel, I said, you know, I, I didn't grow up reading American comics. Now, I, I grew up reading a thing called Asterix. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, it's a French-Belgium comic, Asterix and Obelix, about these two Vikings. <laughs> and, um, you know... Um, and um, you know so I know some like I come from the world of we read obscure but we we don't do Superman and uh, uh, Iron Man and whatever man or woman in the in the sense you know so I felt it was odd to approach me about this in the first place I later learned that is not really what they're going for like I, I mean I, I would almost say that it may actually cost some people the job if they say they're huge, you know, comic book fans. And I don't really know why that is, why that is. But, um, um, you know, since then, though, because what happened with Punisher is that it became, it obviously had, you know, problems finding it, its crowd. Or maybe we shouldn't blame it on the film. But it didn't find the crowd, um, you know, in the beginning when it opened, but then it found it massively afterwards. And so, um, you know, people started following me on Twitter and I would constantly get mail and my managers would say, here's another like 10 mails and letters and emails. And this was like a weekly thing. And, um, you know, I started making friends or at least like, you know, how you can be in the cyber world, like having a relationship with these people who love this movie. And that also included other, you know, people in the comic book scene, not only fans, but, you know, people who draw or little indie publishers or just anybody who was, you know, um, who came up and said, oh, my God, I love that Warzone movie. And that's when I started actually looking into what is there out here, you know, in the comic book world. I mean, what could I do when I, before I knew what a massive disaster it would be in terms of box office, I looked into, you know, what else is there that I could do and what other characters are there. And um, so I guess I became a fan through making this movie. I know some of the complaints about the film was that it was too violent, but I know that you've said that some of the most violent things were actually from the comic books. Almost every single frame. 
you know, as a matter of fact, I felt under pressure to go with what, you know, what basically what, what was in the source material. I mean, I, I studied what fans, or what reviewers and fans didn't like about that um, other um, uh, Punisher movie, the one with um, Tom Jane in it. And it was mainly like, they did it cartoonish, that's not how the Punisher should be, it should be dark, it's so much more violent, it needs to be R-rated. So I said, okay, okay, this, this, you know, what I have to do is I have to stick with the source material because essentially this is who will go and buy a ticket. And so every violent thing you saw in that in that uh, movie was straight out of the comics book. Which I, when, when reviewers like there was a guy in San Francisco who wrote in a review that I have an imagination for violence that should that should give me a term in prison. Except it wasn't my imagination. Like it's unbelievable how people write these reviews and don't even know the source material. Like none of this, other than I tell you one thing that came out of my head was the parkour thing. Parkour guys jumping over the roof and getting shot. It was one of those situations where people kept telling me, "Whatever you do, don't be writing any parkour, um, you know, things." You know, I guess the Hulk was also getting ready to go into production. Two movies before had uh, used parkour scenes, and um, here we were getting ready into production. And I kept hearing this: "Oh, you're not going to do that whole parkour thing." I'm like, "Well, now you're telling me so often I have to do it in a way that's funny because if there's a backlash to these guys, let's just kill them in a really funny way." That's the only thing, and that scene always uh, brings a laugh. So I obviously did it for the joke value and not for the violence value. Yeah, but. And, you know, to be honest, like, there's not that many, I mean, the studio didn't complain about the violence. I think they were happy that I delivered R-rated material. So I'm not quite sure who actually complains about the violence, other than the reviewers. I find the violence to be so cartoonish and just outlandish that it's just, it's kind of wonderful. That was the only way I could do it, to be honest, because I actually, I mean, this is not the kind of movie I would go see myself. Like, this would be, I would consider that, I remember the shoe that came out before with Clive Owen, and I was like, not a film I could watch. But when you looked at the comic book, when I started reading the massive box of comic books that Marvel sent me, on the first pages, some guy gets his balls cut off and served in a coffee cup. And you just see all of that, right? And it was so stupid and so out there that it was you couldn't connect to it on a on a serious level. And I, I thought to myself, Oh, that I can do. That's actually funny. And that was the only way I could do this movie. The way Kurt Sutter, who had written one of the drafts, which I hadn't read at that time, but the way he often described it is he wanted to do it much more grounded and like the shooter, like almost documentary style. And to me, that would have been like, I'm not sure I could have handled that. I was curious about the writing and the producing of the film. It seems like so many of the Marvel movies are kind of written by committee or produced, you know, and I look at how many producers are on the film. Did you have any problems as far as doing your own thing when it came to the number of producers that were on this project? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the deal that comes with these older properties, you know. Yeah, it's a big issue because 
as a director, you also need a producer who's actually a producer. And that's what's so confusing in Hollywood because there's people who get the producer title but won't even like be on set the entire time and won't do the producer work. But then you're suddenly stuck and you realize, oh, I don't have a producer, which is very dangerous, especially as a first-time studio director, because now there's nobody between you and the studio. And not only did I have a studio, I had like almost like feuding parents because Marvel was on one side and Lionsgate on the other. And so often, one didn't like something and then came to me and said, oh, I'm so glad you said that because the guys at Marvel like it. And the other way around, like the marketing team from Lionsgate would send me just poster markup and I would write an email back and I'm like, no, 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 that's not how the colors will look like. You know, I, you know, we can't have that because it looks too kitschy. And then Marvel would write me a secret email saying, I'm so glad you said that because we think the same thing. So it literally was like having these parents that you constantly like, you know, you like the kid in the middle. So you, re- I could have really used a strong producer. And there were many by name, but there, there wasn't anybody actually producing. And that's what happens is like you have people from the previous, you know, movie, the Tom Chain one, like a bunch of people had rights and had to be paid even though they weren't even there. But that's part of the system. That wasn't only my thing. It, you know, they make these deals and that say, hey, if another punisher is produced, I have to be there as a producer and such and such has to pay $500,000 for not even showing up. It's a true fact. And all of a sudden you see all this money disappearing from an already low budget because there's this baggage that comes with a property like that. And I don't know. I mean, it's just wild how that works. And then, you know, and now nowadays, I don't know how it is with Marvel. I mean, they they have most of their properties back, but sometimes it's an active manager who wants to be a producer and uses his clout, you know, to do that. So it's a mess. When you got involved in the project, were they still talking about Thomas Jane reprising his role, or was he already out of the picture? Well, they told me they don't want him. Um, it's, you know, and then, of course, you know, they basically said, look, we want to reboot this completely. And, you know, later on, I found out <laughs> that for him, they say, well, we have this new film again. She wants to cast everybody. In it. That's kind of also a thing. You know, I actually, I'm a fan. Um, you know, and, you know, it's my, it was my first studio film. I would have basically done what they told me to do. But in the very first meeting uh, I had with all of them, Kevin Feige said, you should look at this guy from Rome. And I hadn't seen Rome by then. And even like when I, you know, looked at the internet and looked up Rome and saw the, you know, saw Ray Stevenson, I was like, wow, I mean, he looks like the Punisher. He does look like the Punisher more than Tom Chain, because Tom Chain is very handsome, whereas the Punisher, especially in the later drafts, you know, uh, you know, he has all these like dark wrinkles. I mean, it's not supposed to be like a handsome man. Watch Ray Stevenson call me up and saying, "All of the actors in this film did a tremendous job." I thought so too. You know, I think that essentially it, you know, it definitely found its crowd later. Um, I think it was horribly mismarketed and just to the wrong crowd. You know, there was this idea of like, oh, let's get the Dark Knight crowd. And I was like, Dark Knight had $300 million. That was the second one he shot. And I think that just came out or had just come out and made so much money. Like, you, you can't even compare that. I'm making, trying to do like an outrageous back to the 80s, 
B-movie extravaganza, you can't compare that with The Dark Knight. But there was this thing going on, like, oh, let's put a different soundtrack on there that's not so, you know, hip and more like Dark Knight-ish. And it's just like I saw it all happening in front of my eyes and I couldn't change anything, you know. Was there a lot of improvisation on the set? Not on this, no. I don't think so. I mean, once in a while, Doug Hutchison did a little bit of, like, I remember this, uh, what was that? Um, in my belly, in my yummy, 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 in my tummy, 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 like that came out of his head. And I, I thought that was great. Like, he, he once in a while did little things like that. But other than that, no. I mean, compared to the previous movie that I had done, where I was basically like, look, I want you just guys just, you know, get the message across of what's written here, but like totally, you know, riff it in your own accent and in your own slang. And Both... Dominic West and Doug Hutchinson, they just seem like they're unhinged in this film, and I can't even imagine them saying words that are on paper, but it's just kind of a testament to how well the screenplay was written. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to be honest, the screenplay is what most people criticize. I don't know anymore, because there are half of the people who say this was the greatest script and perfect script and everything was great, and the other half was, I don't know, if it really can't be worth it or not, um... You know, we try to have fun with it, and uh, especially Dominic kept asking me, like, are you sure you want me to go this far out? Because it's far out. Hey, you know, people are getting their head blown off in front of 50-year-old children. Like, we're, <laughs> we're far out no matter what. Like, you just have to embrace it. You can't go alone. And I, I thought so, too. I thought they did a great job for that. And I love the makeup work on Dominic as far as the different pieces of skin that are on his face and just how horrifying that he looks. I agree. I thought that was, um, well, that we definitely went with what was given to us in the script. And I had uh, Robert Short on who won an Oscar for Beetlejuice uh, makeup. So um, he's definitely great. Like he gave me all of these amazing, like, um, uh, concepts drawings before there was like seven or eight different looks and yeah i thought that worked out well and the cinematography the the way that uh steve gainer and you made the film look i mean just it looks better than it really even seems to have a right to look some of the shots are just absolutely gorgeous you know that was our goal i mean really that was that was our thing i i said well, wouldn't it be really interesting if a bloody ridiculous movie like this is also the most beautiful movie. I thought that was a good choice to make, you know, and I think that, I mean, he certainly delivered beyond what I expected on that. I think, you know, review, he said something like, this is the the, or the best horror B movie and also the most beautiful one or something like that where he, he got it. Do you think that some of the controversy as far as the violence goes. Do you think any of that stemmed from this being directed by a woman rather than a man? I can't remember reading the same stuff about any movies men directed, but then probably I would have not read those reviews. I mean, if I hear that the movie is straight out super violent and people left the feet and passed out, I tend to not read about it. Um, I remember one posting a quote, a quote that's also I have on my reel, because it always kind of cracked me up, um, and that San Francisco quote I was talking about, I think I told you about that, the um, 
the guy who said um, I should go to prison for my imagination, for my violent imagination. And so because I, it actually later on I had a sense of humor about it, I, I put it in my reel as well. And when I posted that on Twitter in a conversation, a lot of people said, oh, nobody would ever say that about a man. And so, you know, I wasn't aware of that, but I believe the people who told me, and there were many who said that. So it could very well be. I can't believe anyone would call for you to go to jail. I don't see them doing that to, like, Michael Bay or somebody like that. Yeah, I mean, it did, it did have, like, see, this is what my whole argument with the studio was about, is it suddenly became clear to me that if you are not familiar with the source material of this comic book, of what this movie is based on, you will kind of think this is nuts, right? And they had this, they actually, the studio believed in the film, and they had these two simultaneous um, critic uh, screenings planned, one in New York and one in Los Angeles. But it just occurred to me like a couple of days before that, oh my God, this is a nightmare. They will hate this. And I was right about that because frankly, if I would be a critic, although I think they should just look into the source material if they're reviewing a movie, but they don't. And if I would just see this movie and just think, okay, why is there a guy jumping with his entire boot on the head of a guy hanging already, you know, torched by a fence. Like, I would think that filmmaker is not as well. So why he particularly blamed me is really strange because, you know, the script wasn't even my script. So it is wild. <laughs> when you came to the script, was the character of Looney Bin Jim, was that already in there? Yeah, he was in there. Um, yeah, and um, I think he was, yeah, he was in uh, one of Nick's, um, you know, inventions. And I liked, I knew that the character wasn't in the comic book, but I liked the way he was written so much that I thought, well, he should be in the comic book, you know. Well, I love the, the whole thing of him being LBJ, and especially that part with him and his brother when they're standing in front of that American flag and recruiting all the kind of misfits of the, the criminal underworld. It's just so... It's like taking Patton and kind of standing it on on its head. I don't know how much you know, because I, I always feel like I tell these stories a hundred times. But if you've heard this before, this is what stopped me. But this particular scene is based on... There's only a couple of things I really influenced that were like, okay, I'm... You know, the recruiting scene was there, but it wasn't, you know, like this in the script. The way I shot it um, was... Uh, I had this idea of kind of doing a spoof of that famous scene in uh, uh, Michael Moore's movie. What was that um, 9-11 documentary, The Fahrenheit, exactly. And so there was this famous scene with these two recruiters who kind of look like doofuses, but they keep walking into these high schools recruiting these guys. And it just always, I thought it was so interesting that here are these all-Americana guys and you know, you know that, you you know, half of these kids end up dead, you know. So it was always a scene that as somebody who moved here from Europe has affected me so much and how they do it and how they only do their job well when they actually recruit these kids right out in the, in the basically, in front of high schools. Um, and so this, if you look at that scene from Fahrenheit and you look at that punishment scene, it was literally... Uh, frame by frame kind of a spoof of that. You said that the studio was very behind you when it came to doing Punisher Warzone. Was that the case even after the film came out? Well, it was interesting because, you know, 
I, you know, now in the years afterwards, I tried to find some clarity on what actually happened because I mean, many people have written about it. I fought with the studio and this and that, and I, I don't think people really understand that either they're, first of all, Marvel was barely involved. When they were involved, I actually always liked what they had to say, but I think they felt like they couldn't really step on Lionsgate toes because Lionsgate were paying for the movie. So I had to deal more with them. And I think essentially the, the executive in charge and even the head of production really believed in me. But they, uh, this is where the kind of systemic kind of discrimination comes in. Like, I, I must have been the only filmmaker who worked at Lionsgate where the head of the company just never even introduced himself to me. And he was very unhappy that it ends up being me because I remember that all the like head of production executive wanted me to do this badly. Even after I passed a couple of times, kept coming after me. But then when it finally came down to, okay, we want to give this job to her, the, uh, their boss, like basically the biggest guy at Lionsgate, you know, wanted to offer it to two other guys first and see if they passed before giving it to me. One of them I remember was John Dark. And, you know, and by the way, I, I do think that there were would have been a million directors who could have done a better job than me. I don't think I was the best for this. It just was very obvious how much this man did not want to give me this movie. And then suddenly, you know, the budget dropped tremendously. It, it, it was nothing like, you know, they said to me it's probably going to be around 35. I mean, if I had 18 uh, um, below the line, it's a stretch. So, you know, and then you have to figure this out because nobody tells you this straight out. Studio budgets are the most mysterious thing. Um, I remember precisely talking to uh, Kevin Feige about this, and he actually said something very interesting to me. He checked in one day, and I said, you know, it's funny. I shot Green Street in the middle of London. At the most expensive, and the dollar was weak, and the pound was high. And I had massive fight scenes, you know, 50 guys fighting 50 other guys in the center of London. And I said, and yet I managed to shoot that movie and get all these things in 28 days. And here it seems I have money for nothing. And he said, well, all I can tell you is that in my experience, when you make a studio film versus an independent film, a bottle of water that used to cost 50 cents suddenly cost $8. And that actually made a lot of sense to me. But what that also means is that sending a filmmaker into making a comic book movie without the resources is really kind of unfair. And I try to make the best of it. I mean, you know, if somebody would have said to me, hey, you have the same budget as Dark Knight, I probably would have not chosen to go with an over-the-top, back-to-the-80s, let's-go-all, you know, kind of uh, in, in that tone that, very hyper and, you know, basically like a B-movie celebration. But, you know, when you have, when you have, you know, no money, you know, you can't really even, the attempt to make a Dark Knight type movie is going to fail miserably. I mean, to this day, I believe this was the best I could do, the best. You know, there was nothing else I could have done for the budget I had in the time. What was it like working with Dash Myhawk? Well, Dash and I have worked now three times together. You know, he um, he was in my short film that was nominated for an Oscar, which started my career. So I I always feel like I owed him for 
for saying yes to that. Um, although then later on he said that it became the best part about his reel was that performance. So it's a kind of mutual admiration, um, you know. And um, I um, I I fought for him actually on this on on the Punisher. I mean, it's not. I didn't want to give a friend a gig. He looked like soap on top of it. I mean, he did. You know, with the red hair and the goofiness, he was really the right guy. It's one of those things where I think the studio wanted Steve Buscemi, who didn't want to have anything to do with the film, you know. But it was that thing where, you know, they they just, you know, it's very difficult to get a studio to say yes to the best actor. They would rather go with an actor that doesn't quite fit but has a bigger name, you know. What was it like working with Wayne Knight? I, I thought he was fantastic. Um, he's just a really nice pro. I think uh, everybody uh, at some point was tempted to go, hello, Newman, but you just kind of have, you have to, you know, not do that. But I remember we were laughing sometimes because, you know, it's just hard because that is just such an epic scene and, you know, play in your head. So after Punisher Warzone came out, what was kind of the reaction to you and to the more than even the film where you you know promised the next big movie or what happened after that well a week before the movie came out there was this piece of reel that i had, had cut together and i remember that playing my agent played it for the motion picture department staff meeting and the reaction from the agents alone to that reel was like, you know, it was uh, unbelievable. They wanted to have a meeting. They thought I was like one of them actually called me up and said, you're the next James Cameron. And um, then somebody, um, you know, they wanted to have this big, me- big meeting, which I did have over there, um, where they gave me all these scripts. And I was like the golden child that was supposed to be, you know, after this movie came out, I was the big kid in town. And the movie, of course, tanked miserably and um you know so literally none of but my my agent my person my the person who you know basically was my point agent you know answered my phone call but the rest of them forgot my name by that week and none of those scripts were an option anymore and meetings were cancelled i mean it was literally like you are done how did lifted come about well you know i did feel um I felt, you know, there was a big soul-searching kind of going on in terms of, you know, you know, was this the punishment that I got for making a movie that, you know, wasn't necessarily a passion project for me. Um, but I want to be careful because when comic book people hear that, you know, they always get somewhat offended, you know. Uh, I just, and I think, you know, look, Kenneth Branagh or any of these guys that do the big comics, well, I doubt they've been as big of comic book fans as, you know, some of the people out there, most of the people out there. That doesn't necessarily mean, we, you know, we go in and do a bad job. But, you know, I also, like, people don't understand that I don't even go see violent films, you know. And this wasn't, I, I said no a couple of times. I felt in my gut this wasn't right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a little bit of those, the kind of situation where, you know, you've been running in around in town, uh, having all these meetings on this kind of hot indie movie, and nothing did. Nothing, nothing. I interviewed for, you know, I got, and the the movies that I, the scripts that I sold didn't go. It was that kind of situation, and so 
um, I had to pick something. It was either that or working at, you know, uh, I don't know, coffee shop or something like that. And, you know, you, it's not that that's a bad thing, but you can't in our industry actually do that because if somebody like if your agent or anybody who's working sees you and you're now a barista, you went from like Academy Award nominated director that everybody wants to sign to now they're done with you. That's just how this works. It's not the kind of industry that says, oh, shit, we should do something about it. It's like, oh, no, you're done. I don't want anything to do with you. So the option of like, okay, I can hang in for two more years if I just get a side job, which is actually much more my character, um, it's not really, an, it's not an option here. And so, you know, I, I figured, okay, well, you know, what was always told to me is that there will no, there will be no perfect script. There will always just be shit that's greenlit that I have to turn into something good. And to be honest, that is kind of the case. Um, there's been many movies that I passed on that I just couldn't see being turned into anything but shit that another director then took and, and made something really good um, out of it. Um, but that's, that's the game. And so who, who was I to say, you know, as a young director with not, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly no, you know, Spielberg or even a, I don't know, I, I wasn't even close to being an A-list. I was just coming up. So who was I to say, I'm going to wait for the most perfect script. And so I figured this was part of my, um, you know, this is what I had to do. But I think the other thing that's also true is that you cannot go completely against your assets. Um, and I felt like, you know, that kind of, you know, R-rated violence is, you know, was not something really I, I should have said yes to. Not that I judge it, but I think for me, um, that wasn't what I got into filmmaking. You know, I'm my first films show much more what I am. And I said, so what if I could do anything I want to, what would I do? And um, I wrote the script that everybody loved. Um, but, you know, this was the start of, like, already where you actually can't do as much with little money as people think. Like, there's certain things you can do with little money and other things, you know, they just get lost if you don't have the right name or you don't, they're not as forgiving, um, you know, about the cinematography, for example. So this was one of those films that actually I get the most fan mail for. I have the best reviews, but not even like professional reviews wouldn't even look at it because Hollywood just, they all came to the screening and they all turned to me and said, Oh, you've gone soft on us, Lexi. What is this? Now, the rest of the country is a complete different story because even Netflix sent me a letter and said this was the best-reviewed uh, family movie we've ever had. Yeah, it, it, actually, if you look at all the reviews, I mean, somebody once said to me, you probably paid them. I'm like, if I would have money to pay thousands of people to write reviews on four different outlets, I would use that money for... for Many different things except that. But um, no, I mean, it was always the kind of uh, film. It, it's, it's actually a very Americana. It's very peachy in a sense. And it's, it's sweet, you know. And, you know, sweet is not what I was supposed to deliver. Like people are, you know, waiting for the next screen street and they want me to do that edgy thing again. So. What are you working on now? Well, I then decided it was one of those situations where you kind of think like, okay, what am I, what am I doing now? And scripts are still always coming to me, but I've also lost great hope in the distribution system of Hollywood. Um, and I think that that's where most people don't, from the general public, 
don't understand what's actually going on. Um, you know, at the moment, only these big brands and property and remake movies can survive. You can make a great movie, but if it's not distributed, now it doesn't have a proper theatrical release, and more importantly, a proper marketing campaign and T&A money, um, you make that movie and it's not going to make any money. It's going to die and people are not going to, because we have so much content. So it's hard for people to find this stuff because it's such a jungle out there. But as a director, especially somebody who's been in the game for a while, you get judged on that. You know, it doesn't really matter if I make a great movie and everybody says it's great. You know, if it just went straight to iTunes and it wasn't in a, a, a theatrical release and, you know, it's in general just kind of got lost, that's your fault as a director. You made another film that somebody lost money on. Um, and so the system is really flawed. Like, the system hasn't caught up on even recognizing what is a director's fault and what isn't a director's fault. And so taking on any movie is a struggle for me because I believe that you kind of screwed from day one. So I asked my managers, um, I said, look, I watch a lot more TV than I watch, um, you know, movies anyway. Is there any chance I can get into TV? And then I wrote a couple of spec pilots that were options by different companies. And I kind of like, uh, that's what I do. I pitch TV shows. None of them have ever made it on the air. But actually, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because you don't hear about it and you don't read about it on IMDb because people don't announce option deals. But I'm actually more successful in TV than I have been in, um, in movies, really. In what way are you more successful in television than you are with the movies? Well, you know, so in TV, you, as uh, somebody like me, will like uh, end up partnering with a non-writing TV producer. And there's many of them. Almost every company, like even actors, have like their own little TV division. And, and so you end up taking these meetings. And, you know, for the last, you know, four years or so, I have either written a spec pilot that people have been, you know, fighting over. And literally, I was able to choose between, you know, five different companies and producers who wanted it. Um, or I have not written a spec, but just came straight out and pitched. And, you know, it's one of those things where you go on, there's so many levels to actually getting a show on the air. And obviously, that's the ultimate success. But, you know, that also is a bit of a lottery. And so I find that I'm getting actually more people want to work with me in TV. More people praise me in TV. There's literally like, there's almost nobody I can't get a meeting with. Where that's not the case with movie people. I think movie people kind of like, I'm in director's chair for them. But TV people is a different story. They, especially because I made Cream Street and because my TV ideas are generally about subcultures and kind of underworld, um, I'm, I would say, generally popular out there. You know, that doesn't necessarily instantly translate into a sale because we, we you know, and when I say sale, the, the sale up when you actually sell a show and somebody says, okay, we're putting this on the air. You can sell options and you can get an order to pilot and stuff like that. And that's how you basically make a living. Um, but, you know, we also in, in TV, we have this thing where who they put on the air is often a decision, you know, made out of fear. And so, you know, a, a lot of times they'll, you know, put a show on by somebody who already has, you know, three hits. 
it's very hard to be to get like that first thing. And then when you have done that first thing and that's good, now they're buying everything from you for years to come. You know, also interesting because you don't know if somebody can actually repeat that. But it's the same thing. It's fear. It's fear-based. But on the others, on like, you know, on the kind of levels where you pitch and where people meet you and people want to be in business with you, it's so much more open to me. It's also much less discriminating. And I think we have, you know, a lot of the successful female show uh, creators and showrunners to thank that. Yeah, it feels like I've been hearing that more lately, especially with shows like, um, I'm trying to think, Scandal and a few others where it seems like there's more uh, roles for different genders and different races, where it just feels like television is not necessarily the faces that we see in front of the camera, but the people that are behind the camera, it seems like a a little bit more of a democratic kind of thing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's it it just... I, I don't know why movies are so backwards. It's kind of sad to see, to be honest. Um, but, you know, in TV, it's one of those things like Shonda Rhimes, for example, who has now three successful shows on the air. She changes perception. And this is a great thing because even like, I think some people discriminate without knowing they discriminate. A lot of it is based on like, you know, them being afraid to lose their job and they have a mortgage to pay and kids in expensive private schools because public schools are shit in LA. And so they, um, you know, they, there's this, there's this, I think, internal thing. Some, you know, do it more obvious. Others don't even know they're doing it. But it's like if you put your last money, you know, on a number in, uh, in Las Vegas in the casino, you know, you probably want to do it on something that has very little odds, but you end up doing it on the one with the most odds because you're driven by fear. Because in the last minute, you suddenly can't take that big of a risk. And I think when it comes to choosing a director, people just have a picture in their head. You know, the more they can look like either Spielberg or Tarantino, if anything of them, uh, a young guy reminds them of these guys, to them, it's the safer roulette number to bet on. But Shonda Rhimes in TV has kind of changed that for us, you know, where I think they're very open to hearing from women and from different, um, you know, ethnic minorities. There are so many people that we've talked to on the show where they have moved from directing, producing, writing films to television, um, including, you know, you mentioned John Dahl earlier. He's now working in television. Keith Gordon, just so many people that we've talked to have moved into that arena. It seems like now that is the bastion for good, solid storytelling as well. You know, it really is. But I also think, I think a lot of same directors think, why am I doing this? I mean, I met executives who, uh, I actually had a meeting with one. I particularly remember this one. Um, who he worked uh, uh, on some of the biggest movies you can imagine. I think some somewhere where they had a deal with Warner. And so all those 300 posters were hanging there and whatnot. And I, I remember him telling me, like, you know, the stress of the notion of it's all in or nothing. And but what he meant by that was that it's all in means you can't even do a $90 million film. It's like a $300 million film with a massive brand and a massive star and $100 million put aside to just do P&A and marketing. And other than that, it just doesn't bring a return. And that's the fact that we have completely, you know, kind of forgotten how to make 
a Goonies or Back to the Future or any of the movies I grew up with kind of saddens me, you know? Yeah, it feels like that middle ground has just disappeared. Those lower budget movies where they're taking chances. Correct. And even the ones that we see are based on a book and, uh, you know, but rarely, rarely do we see an original title where they really kind of say, oh, we still believe in this thing. And by the way, I don't necessarily think it's all the studio's fault. I think that when I grew up, um, you know, we looked in the newspaper to see what movie played and all the movies had their ass in there. And if it wasn't the newspaper, then you saw the trailer on the five different channels that you were watching on TV. Well, that's changed to a thousand channels, uh, you know, between TV and on the internet and different websites and the newspaper doesn't even exist anymore. So if you want to reach people and tell them you need to be aware of this movie, people are lost. They don't know where to put it that they can catch you. I mean, do you have to have a campaign like Avatar had? that is so massive and so expensive that really the entire nation knows that this film is coming out. But who can afford that? Especially if you pick up a $5 million film that has no stars in it, to put $100 million into it to get like a 50% awareness is insane. So it's not their fault. You know, I keep thinking some genius internet kid is going to invent something that fixes this problem of how can we, you know kind of get a path to this labyrinth of a jungle, you know, like somebody needs to clear it out. How do we actually, you know, find content that for my demographic, for my interest? I have this issue with music, you know, I like to listen to music, but I can't go for hours to iTunes and still for and look for things. And none of these programs work for me, the one that supposedly suggests a playlist based on your likes. I'm always like, oh, I don't like this. This is not what I what I put in at all, you know. And so I actually don't, you know, listen to a lot of music anymore simply because I don't have the time to keep up with it and search for the stuff that I personally like. What's interesting that you kind of bring up these alternate forms of distribution. I know that you've worked on um, uh, at least one new YouTube show. Was that a success at all, or was that kind of ship had the, already sailed? The one I did with uh, Twain? Right. No, that wasn't successful, but that was kind of weird, because here came, comes Google and gives all these people massive amounts of money, and it was kind of like thrown out of the window. I mean, frankly, I think that was a bunch of Hollywood people really taking advantage of... Um, Silicon Valley money. And somebody later from Silicon Valley told me when I got kind of a spokesperson for, you know, you know, file sharing or at least stop, you know, criminalizing file sharing. I spoke to a lot of these guys and they were like, we don't want to have anything to do with Hollywood and we don't care about Hollywood because we were the ones who opened our pockets and threw so much money into it. And all we did was buy houses and cars for executives and agents. So they got mad. Like, I, as a filmmaker, don't even know about this. All I can say is that that part of, like, that little short film Wayne and I did, like, that, I guess, was part of this whole, we throw money into it and all, all, all we got was the shitty T-shirt or the shitty shorts. <laughs> and, by the way, I mean, you know, you actually, I mean, thinking about Twain and me, like, you, you actually had some quality people there, but we're not magicians. Like, if you actually don't give us 
the resources to do what we do, it, you know, uh, it's not going to work. Right. You know, you're one of the few directors that I can think of that actually still keeps a personal blog. Do you get any crap for blogging about what you feel? Well, I, I, you know, it's funny because we have this little gang of people who've decided to tweet about the issue of discrimination. It's not all, uh, I mean, I should probably shouldn't say this. It's not always me personally. Sometimes the tweets, I program them. Sometimes somebody else posts, uh, posts something for me. If you see me in an argument, that's me personally because I, you know, I don't let other people argue for me. But we've kind of made a conscious attempt to keep this always in the mind of people. The blog actually has neglected because I felt like I've also shut down Facebook because I felt like this is only one source I can focus on. I will do another blog about, um, you know, like when it really gets too much and it doesn't fit into several tweets, I will actually sit down and write it. You know, it's funny. I think the piracy stuff has gotten some bad backlash. And the the stuff about, you know, gender equality and diversity is interesting because I think that the people who don't believe we should talk about this and don't believe we should change anything, that Hollywood should be white and male as it always was or almost always. But um, they wouldn't have hired me anyway. Um, so I, I don't think I've lost anybody there. But what happens is frequently now people reach out uh, to me because they've read something they like, you know, especially sometimes you know, executives who are, you know, thinking about this and think, God, we really wanted to change this and we love your blog. And uh, many women say, like, God, it's about time we start talking about this. Uh, so essentially it was, I think, more of a benefit if you weigh it all up. The piracy stuff is interesting because that's a touchy, touchy, touchy subject. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that I only came to the piracy stuff because of the other stuff. Because I kept thinking, why does every male-dominated industry that has this problem of, you know, they can't get any diversity, even a show about L.A. will have one Hispanic person. I mean, it's so outrageous because you can't turn around here. It's the majority of people here, uh, you know, um, at least have some ethnicity other than Caucasian. And so it's really unfair. And it's, you know, it's not right, to be honest. It, it gives people a wrong idea of, what our world is, is the misrepresentation of our world. So I think it needs, needs fixing, but I kept wondering, like, why do we have this industry that puts no money into fixing this, no real program? I mean, tech has a bad, you know, kind of uh, discrimination uh, issue, but tech actually spends some serious money on trying to fix it and has some major people talking about it. We have none of that. And so when I was looking into who could spend money on this, I came across the MPAA and read about the, the hundreds and millions of dollars they have spent on a program that in the end didn't work. And it just kind of made me sad. So I started digging further and found out all this corruption about the foreign leaders and this and that. But what they do is they will actually go to Sweden and put some kid to start a pirate bay or, or ran a server in his mom seller, they will actually put that kid in prison and spend millions on lawyers doing that. But there's not $10,000 for a diversity program. So that's how I came to the other subject, except the subject of piracy, because it's okay to go after me for that, where it's not okay to go after me officially for speaking about equality. 
so they kind of get me on that. But I find it all amusing, you know. I'm glad you're not letting it get to you. It sometimes does, but, you know, I mean, you know, you, you either one one day you get up and you say, I'm going to have to, like, fight this. And uh, luckily for me, I'm actually a, a, a trained and formerly competitive fighter. And when I put on the clubs, I'm fighting. Like, I'm actually, I, you know, I expect all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> I also think it's important for young girls that are coming up. I mean, I get all these letters of young girls that want to be directors because of me. Right now, there's no room for them. Like, I, what I really want to tell the parents, whatever you do, don't let them, you know, become directors because they will be discriminated and if they're pretty, they will be sexually harassed by people in power. And um, so it, it's a bad situation and I feel responsible for changing it for them. How did you get into the comic book industry? Well, I lived in New York City. As a kid, I discovered that DC Comics was doing a it would do a weekly tour uh, in their offices uh, on a Thursday afternoon. And I talked my dad into taking me down to uh, see the tour. And then after going on the tour and seeing how things were behind the scenes, uh, I went back on the tour, then I went back on the tour, then I kept going back on the tour, and eventually I started slipping away and talking to the editors and asking them if I could write or draw for them. I um, started pitching them ideas, uh, and over a course of, uh, I guess, about a year, you know, banging my head against the wall with uh, these fellows, uh, finally got some uh, some movement and was welcomed in, and from there... The rest is history. So obviously you're a comic book fan growing up. What were some of your favorite titles? Well, I was a big DC fan and a big Marvel fan. Uh, those were the, the two big companies then as now. I liked uh, the Julia Schwar- Julie Schwartz edited books at DC, things like uh, Justice League and Flash, and when he took them over, Batman and uh, Detective, Green Lantern, Adam, you know, the, the, the Julie Schwartz books. And then at uh, Marvel, I was a, a big fan of uh, Stan's uh, Spider-Man and uh, the work that he was doing with Jack Kirby on Thor and and, and on uh, uh, Fantastic Four. So, you know, from the very beginning, it was, I, I can't say there was anything remarkable about it. I liked, I liked the general stuff that everybody liked. When it came to Spider-Man, I mean, you wrote for Spider-Man for quite a few years, correct? My first time, uh, the first run that I I worked on Spider-Man for about three years, and then in the 80s I came back and I think worked on it for another two, two and a half, three years. I think you're probably most, I don't know, famous or infamous for killing off Gwen Stacy. How did that kind of come about? It was the result of a desire on the part of uh, several of us to make things interesting in the book you know you're you're always at least back then uh and i'm sure that's the case now you're always trying to to inspire readers and give them a feeling that there's a a reason to pick up the next issue and one of the ways you do that is by creating drama and consequences for your characters john ramita had uh suggested the idea that we kill off one of the main characters, one of the supporting cast characters, uh, to raise the stakes. And his particular vote for that was uh, to kill off Aunt May. I felt that Aunt May served a very fundamental purpose uh, in the book. 
uh, and in Peter's life, you know, as a constant reminder of his failure to act responsibly, which resulted in the death of his uncle Ben and sort of gives him the, re- the reason for, you know, being a superhero. So I was looking at the other supporting characters and I had always felt that they'd taken a, a, a wrong turn when they picked Gwen Stacy as, as Peter's love interest. Mary Jane Watson had been introduced around the same time as Gwen and seemed to me a much more interesting character. I mean, she had more uh, spunk, you know, to use that that word. She, she, she had a kind of an individualized personality that was challenging to Peter in a way that I didn't see with Gwen. Uh, I just never responded to Gwen. Uh, so I'd rec- I said, well, how about we kill off his girlfriend, Gwen Stacy? And, you know, everybody was pretty much on board. Uh, there were there was no really violent uh, disagreements from Stan, you know, to Roy Thomas, uh, to John Romita. We all thought it was a great idea. So that's what we ended up doing. I think it really added a lot of weight to the story and just... Yes, Uncle Ben was so crucial, but I think it just really kind of drove home. Yeah, well, I mean, what it does, I mean, the thing about Uncle Ben is that it, that it raises the the question of uh, taking personal responsibility in, you know, in your life for the decisions you make. But the, the point of the Gwen story, which was not intended by me, but, but I, I look back at, back at it now in retrospect, is that, you know, dealing with the with the fact that sometimes you can't change what's going to happen that you know that you are that even a hero has to accept that there are things uh you know not uh within his capacity to to achieve you know like the rescue of a loved one so it it gave some balance to the book i think emotionally and and did give us some weight you know that that maybe uh uh it hadn't quite had before that now, you bounced back and forth between Marvel and DC quite a bit back then. Mm-hmm. What was it like working for the, the two different companies at the, the various times you were working for them? Well, they had very, they had very different, uh, and, and I, this is probably true today, too. They, they had very different ways of, of uh, interacting with, with creators um, and different philosophies of what made for a good comic book story. Marvel was specifically during the early period that I worked for them was kind of chaotic and uh, very open to writers and artists sort of just winging it and doing what they wanted to do. And part of that was because of a structural problem with the editorial setup. Uh, They had one editor in charge of 50 books and you can't really, you know, exercise much oversight, you know, on on an issue by issue basis when you're putting out, uh, 10, 10 books a, a week, you know. So the end result was uh, that we as individual creators had, had a lot more authority than you would suppose. At DC, there was more structure in the, in the editorial department, and there was also the fragmentation of the editorial department where each editor had their own vision of, of what a good comic book story would be. So if you worked at DC, you could work for two or three different people and have two or different, two or three different aesthetic, uh, approaches, you know, that, that were, that you had to respond to. So that was kind of good, you know, uh, in, in the sense of stretching you as a creator. And that was something that, uh, made working for DC kind of fun and, and, and interesting. 
but both companies, you know, have, have each had a, a lot to recommend them. You know, especially at, uh, for a young person like myself, you know, working uh, at that time trying to find my way and figure out, you know, what I, how I wanted to write, what I wanted to write. What was kind of your role in the bringing together of the two universes between Superman and Spider-Man? Uh, well, that was an interesting, interesting development. Uh, I had just left Marvel uh, for DC in, in, the, in, I think it was 1975, and the uh, at DC I was I was considered something of a catch because I had been the writer of Marvel's top books at the time, you know, Spider-Man and uh, uh, Fantastic Four and Thor and so on. So to Carmen Infantino, I was like this hot, hot talent, <laughs> which was kind of funny. And as it turned out, a, a guy named David Opst, who was uh, a super agent uh, in New York, a, a super agent for, for writers in New York, uh, he had represented Woodward and Bernstein in the selling of their book, All the President's Men. David had... Uh, talked with Stan Lee about some projects that Stan was trying to get off the ground uh, as books. And during the course of their conversation, David, who was kind of familiar with comics and liked them, uh, said, why is it that Marvel and DC have never done a, uh, uh, a team-up book, you know, uh, with Superman and, and Spider-Man, you know, together? And Stan said, oh, you know, it never happened. You know, we, we hate each other too much. You know, there's no way. And Opes volunteered himself to broker the deal, and he actually brokered between Carmen Infantino and Stan Lee uh, an arrangement whereby uh, DC would provide the writer and Marvel would provide the editor. I'm not the not the editor, the the artist. So I was, as I say, I just come over to uh, uh, to DC, and as a result, Carmine decided, you know, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll wave this flag at, at Stan and say, you know, ha ha, I've got your, your the former, one of your former top guys and I'm going to have him write the book. And as it turned out, that meant that I could work with the artist that I had been writing, uh, uh, working on uh, Spider-Man with, uh, Ross Andrew. So I, I brought Ross into the project because he had also drawn both Spider-Man and Superman. Uh, and pretty much we did it on our own. You know, we, we had a little bit of oversight through Marvel. Uh, we were provided Roy Thomas as, as an editorial consultant by Marvel. But Roy and I were buddies and pretty much of one mind about how things should be. And so he pretty much let me let, left me alone. And the book that you see is pretty much the result of Ross and I doing what we wanted to do. So it was a lot of It was a real great opportunity and, and uh, was a lot of fun. Is the title kind of a misnomer? Are they actually going against one another, or are they working together? Well, they do have a little uh, brief head-to-head, you know, in the middle of it. And I, I guess you could use it. That, that was kind of a tradition f- for both companies when superheroes would meet up, you know, and they would initially uh, have some conflict, and then they would resolve it and go on and... Uh, battle together but you know if you're going to do a a, a a a story that features superman and spider-man in it i think you really do want to see them come at each other and that's that's what we did 
when you came back to Marvel later on and you started writing Spider-Man again, what was kind of his place at that particular point? You had kind of given him some of the gravitas with the Gwen Stacy death, but where was he at as far as his evolution? Well, by that point, that was the, the mid-80s, uh, I think. It was uh, 85 or so, and they were, they had three titles a month that they were doing. I think... I'm not sure if if, if I, th- I think Mary Jane and Peter had been married at that point, uh, so that they were now a permanent couple. The thing is that when I because I wasn't writing the main book, which was Amazing Spider-Man, I was writing the two uh, uh, secondary books, Web and uh, Spectacular. I didn't feel like I could do anything with speed with uh, Peter's. Uh, uh, main storyline, you know, like his character, what, what was going on for him personally. So, in a way, I kind of ignored what was going on with him uh, in the other books. I mean, I, I focused my attention on supporting cast members and their story and how they interacted with Peter uh, and developed what I kind of considered to be like an alternate reality, you know, that 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 existed in the two titles that I was doing while David Michelini was doing, you know, the stories that, that, that he was doing amazing. Uh, and I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really feel like there was much overlap between them until, unless we were doing a multi-part story that, that, uh, featured in all three books, which I think we did a couple of times during my, my run. I'm not saying I was being arrogant here. It was mostly just a, 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 a practical effort to try to, make those books work without uh, stepping all over David's toes. Yeah, I know that as a collector and as a reader, it was always kind of interesting having to bounce back between the books and where was each one taking them and what stories were happening at the time. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing, and I think that's one of the reasons that they... They don't do that anymore. You know, they, they they do the occasional point books, you know, like the one that I'm doing right now on for me with amazing. But, you know, it's 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 kind of considered that this is sort of happening in a uh, in an off off weekend. You know, while it's happening, we try to make it count. But but at the same time, we can't really reflect what's going on in the main book because that needs to take place in the main title, you know, that's where the readers are going to expect to see, you know, the, 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 the crucial developments. Going back to, I guess it was what, 1974, the introduction of the Punisher, how did his character evolve? Well, the Punisher, uh, was originally conceived as a, uh, secondary villain to introduce, uh, a villain called the Jackal, who was going to be the new mastermind, uh, replacing the Green Goblin in Peter's life, you know, and I, I had the story that 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 had to be uh, had to develop that that Stan wanted us to develop of, of bringing back Gwen Stacy, but bringing her back as a clone. And in order to do that, that, that bringing her back as a clone was my way of addressing Stan's desire to bring back Gwen. In order to do that, I felt like I needed a a, a, a behind the, behind the scenes villain who's pulling the strings for this vast conspiracy that's going to bring back when and in order to introduce him i 
use this kind of technique that we sometimes use, you know, of introducing a minor villain, you know, who's really impressive and tough, you know, but not so impressive and tough that he doesn't, you know, give you some leeway to introduce the really, really important character. Well, the Punisher was conceived to be that secondary villain who wouldn't have the gravitas, you know, of, of the, the, say, the Jackal. And as it turned out, he had a lot more gravitas than the Jackal, which we didn't really, you know, we sort of realized it as we were developing the character, that he had more more heat than we really uh, initially imagined. I had originally just sort of considered him a one-shot you know, in and out character, but as we developed the costume and, and started, you know, as I started writing him, I saw that there was a lot more potentially there, and we decided to bring him back in a couple of months, even before we got the fan response, and, you know, fan response was through the roof. He was coming out, as far as I can understand, it looks like about February of 74, and right around that same time, I know that there was the book, but then the movie Death Wish comes out July of 74. What was it in the zeitgeist as far as these kind of vigilante? You have to put it in this perspective of what was going on in New York City, because uh, there was a sense of a city out of control. New York was was uh, in crisis and uh, there were, there was a lot of violence in the streets, you know, literally in the streets. It felt like the the systems and the the, the 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 government you know was not able to stand up for you know and protect the average citizen so there was a sense you know that that something had to happen you know that something had to change and we also had this ongoing situation in in the, the country of of this similar to what we have now you know where there's a, a very forceful right wing element and a very forceful liberal element, you know, sort of pushing against each other. But back then, you know, you had all these arguments about uh, <clears throat> uh, the rights of criminals, you know, that, that were being supposedly protected uh, over the rights of citizens, you know, and, uh, you know, criminals, quote, getting away with murder, and, you know, the justice system was failing, and all this rhetoric was going on. And then a character like the Punisher came along and, and sort of cut through that. As did, you know, Dirty Harry uh, a couple of years earlier, a character called The Executioner that was appearing in pulp paperback novels. Ultimately, you know, Death Wish, uh, the idea of a vigilante taking on, you know, taking the law into his own hands. The Jackal character that you created, he was the guy who kind of helped really mix up or shake up the Spider-Man universe years later when it came to his cloning and everything, correct? Yeah, yeah. They they took something that that was kind of unresolved in the Spider-Man book, which was which, you know, did did did, did the Spider-Man clone survive or not? You know, I mean, I I felt it was pretty clear that he hadn't survived. But they took that, and I think they they ran with it probably further than they needed to. <laughs> but they did, and uh, turned it created the the whole Ben Riley alternate Peter Parker storyline. You know, the, the Clone Wars or whatever it was that they ended up uh, Clone Clone Saga, which I wasn't really. I was only I think involved in kind of tangentially near the end of it uh, when I was working on on web spectacular or either that, or I was there before it started. I'm not really sure of the, of the timeline. 
when it comes to um, when you were at DC, you created the character Firestorm, the nuclear man. Was there ever any talk of him crossing over into movies? <laughs> no, uh, there was very little. It, when you think about it, uh, the, the history of, of superheroes in, in film, before the Superman movie came out in 77 uh, or so, whenever, whenever that was, uh, there had not really been a serious treatment of superheroes in film at all. You know, there'd been the, um, uh, the Batman TV show, which was treated comedically. Uh, and then there had been the serials back in the 1940s, uh, uh, and the Superman TV show in the, in the early fifties, but there'd been no real sense that these characters could have any, any real, existence in the film world so there was no idea that, that firestorm or any of these characters would ever really appear outside of comics uh maybe in a cartoon you know firestorm did appear in super friends but no no idea that that, that you could at first of all from a technical filmmaking point of view it would have been really hard in the in the 70s or uh 80s to do firestorm and uh you know, it still is. I, I, I'm really impressed by the way they do it in Flash uh, and make it look as credible as they do. You've had so many characters that you've written for now translated to other media, cartoons, movies, TV shows, all this kind of stuff. What are some of your, your favorite incarnations when it comes to these other forms of media? Well, I really like what they're doing on Flash and uh, Arrow with characters that I, I had a hand in uh, creating. Um, you know, I can't take any real, uh, proprietary credit for Felicity Smoke other than the fact that, you know, they used her name and made her a computer genius, which that's what the Felicity Smoke the comics was. Uh, but, you know, you take characters like, uh, Firestorm, Caitlin Snow, uh, Paco Ramon, you know, you're, you there's a whole series of characters who seem to be, you know, popping up, uh, in those, in those th- uh, shows that, that I had a hand in and it's, it's great fun. You know, it's, it's great fun to see it. Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of what they've done with killer croc over the years, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, delighted that he's going to be in super suicide squad. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, so I've been very lucky that that uh, for reasons, I guess, of timing, that the people who uh, are in a position to uh, do something with these characters were young readers when I was writing the books. And now they're you know mature adults producing and creating television and film, and they draw on the stuff that they loved when they were kids, which happened to be the stuff that I wrote. Do you ever get bent out of shape when you see what some of your creations have kind of been up to? Uh, the only the only th- th- thing that ever really bugged me uh, was the way that uh, they went off track in the in the comics with Firestorm by sort of misunderstanding the the dynamic that uh, made that character work way back when it was, when it was uh, uh, first created. That's real life, you know. People, people come along and reinterpret things, and uh, sometimes it works. It works to the advantage of the character, and sometimes it doesn't. But that's that's really the only case that that I that where I felt like they people really wrong footed something. Have you seen the adaptations of the Punisher over the years? You know, for for kind of 
childish reasons, I I, and, uh, I haven't watched them. I actually have it on my list to watch all three uh, now, but because I wasn't being credited or uh, given any uh, financial benefits for working on uh, for creating that character i i forswore ever watching the movies you know it's like i i'm not going to give you my my five dollars or whatever <laughs> but you know i i do actually uh look forward to seeing them now i don't you know i haven't I haven't watched any of them so it'll be all very fresh for me i'm very curious to get your reactions to those i'm sure that you know i'm sure my reaction will be mixed but <laughs> you know but I'm actually pretty forgiving of these things. You know, it's like, I don't know why I, I, I hate when people completely ignore what supposedly made those characters makes a superhero character popular, because it seems to me you're kind of defeating it, de- defeating your own purpose in using the character, but it doesn't seem like they did that completely, you know, with these, with these, uh, adaptations, they just sort of may have done it less effectively, in some cases than in others. So it's not like they, they turned him into a pacifist, you know, who wants to go around t- t- telling people uh, what they're doing wrong with their lives. I mean, that's, <laughs> they, they kept the essence of it. I really like the kind of homage to the death of Gwen Stacy that Sam Raimi did in the first Spider-Man yes, film. That was very clever. I thought, yeah, I thought that was really nice, especially compared to how they handled it in the last Spider-Man film. I don't know if you watched that one. I did. I, 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 I think that they had some bigger problems than the execution. I think that the execution of that uh, was as as good as you you were likely to get, uh, given that that the actual storytelling that that would have worked had been kind of uh, trumped by that, you know, usage of it in the first uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. You couldn't really go back to that well, you know, and throw off a bridge. You were sort of trapped in a, in a particular storytelling bind, which they found a way out, out of. The bigger problem for me with that was that they just, structurally, that, that movie just doesn't work. You know, it, it's, it, there is no really clear dramatic through line that uh, makes sense. So while the sequence I think works really well and is very powerful emotionally, there's no sense of setup or healing afterwards. You know, you don't have Mary Jane as available to provide Peter with a, a potential future, you know, so he's just left with this kind of bleak, awful moment in his life and 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 no real cathartic release you know i mean it's just horrible it's like I, it is what it is though there it's all gonna it's all gonna start over again so there's that exactly <laughs> yeah i i can't wait for that origin story yet another time i don't think they're gonna do it i mean from my understanding that the, their approach is going to be that this already happened we don't need to tell this story again you know spider-man is going to be introduced the the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man is going to be introduced in Civil War, uh, Captain America Civil War, as a pre-existing character who, I think the way Kevin Feige put it is that it, during the events of the Avengers movie, there's this kid in a make makeshift home costume f- flitting around New York, and nobody's quite aware of him yet. And so when we're when we, what we'll see 
with Captain America Civil War is him, you know, maybe around what if you want to think of it in terms of the, the Spider-Man uh, history, uh, he's he's around issue 10, you know, issue issue 12, you know, of the, the first run. Uh, where he's still in high school, still learning his powers, hasn't gotten a girlfriend yet, hasn't gotten you know a grip on things, is callow and youthful and and uh, kind of spunky and kind of kind of kind of cool, you know, but not yet the dramatic Peter, you know, of, of later stories, which I think is a really clever way to sort of go in because everybody knows his story now he got bit by a, a, a radioactive spider and his uncle died and he feels bad about it you know that's we all know that we don't need to go back we don't need to tell it again sometimes it feels like peter's just there to be punished <laughs> well he is i mean in a very real sense that was that's that was what uh that was the insight that stan uh had you know when he when he created the character superheroes had Always, you know, gain, gaining the super superpower was a wish fulfillment that released them from uh, the problems of the world, right? You know, that, that uh, if I if I get the, the 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 green ring, you know, I'll be able to make everything happen. If I get struck by lightning, I'll be able to run really really fast, and I'll be able to save the day. And and all of that was was great, but it was with just pure wish fulfillment. And with with Spider Man, what the, the insight that Stan had is that it doesn't change anything. You know, it just adds another layer of problems <laughs> that, yeah, you know, you, you're you're in terms of the, the, the core Spider-Man mythology, going back to the to the Spider-Man as a teenager, you know, Spider-Man is a teenager and teenagers lives are hell. <laughs> I mean, they're just terrible. They're no fun. You know, you feel insecure. You know, you're always making mistakes. Uh, you, you never get what you think, you know, even if you get what you want, it turns out not to be what you want. There's always some problem that you have to deal with. You've got a test, you've got, you know, problems at home and that's just a universal story. So yeah, uh, uh, he does exist to be beaten up because that's what life is like for a teenager. (laughs) I know that over the years, there have been some interesting comics over the years, some, you know, let, let's see if this thing works kind of stuff strange crossovers, interesting one-offs, those kind of things. And I know that you've had your fair share of this kind of stuff. I'm thinking particularly of something like the um, what you did with the Atari 2600 comic books. Mm-hmm. What was some of the, the strangest things that you've been involved with over the years? Well, I think the, the, the Atari comics are probably the most strange uh, in the comic book world that I've, I've worked on. Because they, there was absolutely no reason for them to exist for any purpose that I can see, other than that Atari had a lot of money, uh, Warner's had bought them, and uh, Jeanette Kahn was looking for a way to make DC Comics part of that that uh, sexy new purchase that that, that Warner's had, uh, and to show that that comics could be useful. You know, in the video game world, which I, which is a smart idea, from the point of view of of the comics, there there was nothing, there was there was no way to make these two things fit together. This was before you actually had the ability to do narrative in video games. Back then, it was just you know you could do you could do, they were very very simple, point and shoot you know point and click, not even shoot you know just just very 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 simple uh, 
arcade games. And so the, the idea of doing a, a narrative comic to accompany one of those was kind of bizarre. And, you know, we, we, we tried to come up with, uh, we did this thing called Sword Quest that w- was supposed to be this combination of a, of a prize premium type project, you know, where it would be a freebie inside your, your uh, video game box, but would also somehow encourage you to buy the video game just so you could get the comic and find out. It's like, what the heck? This has got... It was weird. It was totally weird. It was a lot of fun. You know, we, we got to, uh, I got a ton of free video games and got to fly up to uh, San Jose and meet with the Atari developers who were as bewildered as we were by what we were trying to do. So it was, uh, it was interesting. But that's probably the most bizarre of all of them. What are you working on currently? You said that you're doing some work with Amazing Spider-Man. I have a mini-series that's uh, uh, moving along uh, towards its conclusion. It's uh, uh, what's known as a point series. So uh, it started with, came out the same month as Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 16. So it's Amazing Spider-Man 16.1, and then the next month it's 17.1, and then 18.1. It's a five-part story that delves into a gang war in New York that uh, Spidey gets involved in, uh, featuring all the street-level supervillains, you know, like Hammerhead and Tombstone and Black Cat and the Circus of Crime and all of these characters that aren't hugely super powerful and multidimensional. But, you know, it's more uh, the kind of stories that I enjoyed reading when I was first reading Spider-Man. I'm doing another project that, uh, for Marvel that I can't really talk about but which will start up in the fall then there's a project potentially for dc that uh i'm i'm hopeful will also start up by the end of the end of the year so you know it seems like i'm to quote john wick uh seems like i'm back Hey folks, here's a little bonus interview. We got to speak to Doug Hutchinson about his role as Looney Bin Jim. Did I read right that you grew up in Detroit? I did. I grew up in Detroit, in South Detroit. Um, we lived on 11 and a half mile in Van Dyke, which is just like three and a half miles up from M&M on eight mile there. And, um, and then my family, um, I moved out into the suburbs, into Warren, Michigan, uh, and basically, I grew up in South Detroit and Warren, Michigan. How old were you when you started to get into acting? Probably at a very young age, but I didn't realize it was kind of sowing the seed. But I remember, um, I remember back in like was fifth grade, I was cast as um, Max Schmidt, the head gnome, and the elementary school um, holiday play, the, the day Santa Claus lost his beard. And I didn't realize at the time that my my teacher, my drama teacher, cast me in, in the role of mischievous one. And so I was, I was just having a blast, like causing trouble in this play, and then at the end getting like uproarious applause for it. And I thought, wow. There's something to this, you know. It's like I can like, I can be bad and get applauded at the same time. Um, 
So I kind of dug that. So I think that was probably the beginning. And then throughout high school, you know, I just gravitated toward the arts, um, mostly music. I mean, I played guitar, so and it was Detroit, you know, so I was I was in in and out of bands and um, really wanted to pursue being a rock star and, and all that stuff. And then I don't know, I just had some drama teachers in high school who were very passionate about getting me up on the stage in theater, and um, I was kind of pushed by them, blessedly, and then I just found that I had a knack for it, and so I guess to answer your question, started in, in school, as early as elementary school. How did you decide to kind of pursue this and make this your career? After my parents divorced, my mother um, ended up moving to uh, Apple Valley, Minnesota, where I moved with her. I ended up graduating high school from Apple Valley. I, I spent my last year of high school there. And there was um, an acting teacher there by the name of Dennis Swanson. And he took a shining to me and um, he kept casting me in his plays that year, even though I was. I was a bit reluctant to be in them. Again, I was really, even then, I was still, my love was music. And so I, this, the acting thing was fun, but I never, ever considered the possibility of making a living. At it. Um, and after I graduated high school, uh, Mr. Swanson, Dennis Swanson, sort of became a stalker. And he ended up, like, calling me constantly and asking me, what are you, what are you doing with your life? What are you, uh, what are you making of yourself? And, um, he kept pushing me to audition for community theater and professional theater in Minneapolis. And, um, I had some, you know, I had a semblance of success in my endeavors there. And then I kept auditioning for, the Guthrie Theater, which is the big theater in Minneapolis, and it's a whole A theater. And I kept getting very close to getting cast, but I would never get cast. And so I ended up calling the casting director at one point, Stephen Willems, and I said, well, what's the deal? You know, you keep calling me back, and I keep getting close, but no cigar. And he said, you're a diamond in the rough. He said, you need some polish. And he recommended uh, Juilliard in New York City. And so I auditioned for Juilliard. I was accepted, and I ended up going to Juilliard only for a year uh, before I got out and just go right into um, the unknown. And um, eventually got an agent. And it, this is over the course of you know five, six, seven years. Um, got an agent, kicked around. I worked every job job imaginable. You know. Delivering pizzas, working at McDonald's, you name it, to pay the rent. And eventually, I started doing a great deal of theater, uh, mostly regional theater that was cast out of New York City, a lot of off-Broadway stuff. And then in 1987, I got cast in my first motion picture, which was uh, Fresh Horses with um, Molly Ringwald, Ben Stiller, and Vigo Mortensen. And myself, and I got I got a, a meaty little supporting role in that. So that was sort of um, that was sort of uh, my first foray into um, cinema, I guess, from stage. What was that transition like for you, going from stage to to the big screen? 
<laughs> at the time, I was doing an off off Broadway play for eleven. I'm sorry, it was twelve dollars a week. They were paying twelve dollars a week, and um, and I got I suddenly got cast in Fresh Horses, and my income shot up from like twelve dollars a week to ten thousand dollars a week. <laughs> it was insane, and um, I was thrilled. I, I not not just about the money. I mean, I was thrilled to be. Um, you know, kept in a movie, and David Onshaw directed. He directed a movie back in the day called Hoosiers. Um, I don't know if you remember that that film, but yeah, a beautiful movie. And um, this was Ben Stiller's first big movie, Viggo Mortensen's first big movie, and we shot in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I just just had an absolute blast, and. Um, it was a learning experience for me, however, because I, I never really had any training in in film acting, and I realized how difficult it is from theatrical acting, and so I had to acclimate myself to it. And David Onstall was kind enough to know how green I was, and he he flew me out two weeks before I actually before my first uh, scene. And so I got to sit on the set a lot as the veterans, um, and you know, I get used to that environment before I have plunged in and, and started acting the movie. Um, so it was, it was, I was ecstatic. It was, it was thrilling, and it was like apples and oranges compared to my stage experiences. I think the first thing I really remember seeing you in was The Chocolate War, which must have been right around that same time. Yeah, that was right after Fresh Horses, actually. Um, I went in to, I was, <laughs> I was going to audition for um, the lead in that movie, but the director thought I was a little too old for for the lead, and he, and he was right. And so he wanted me to audition. What did he... No, I know what happened. I he he wanted me to come in and audition for the lead, and I thought I was a little too old for the role, and I gravitated toward the character of, of Obi. But Obi in the in the novel, which is what Keith Gordon adapted the the movie from, Obi is this big, huge Obi kind of character, and so I walked in and I met Keith Gordon, and I'm this little five six Spitfire, and he's he immediately, I could tell, he immediately didn't think I was right for the role. And I said, you know, Keith, I said, just give me a shot. Just just let, let me give you my interpretation. And if it's way off the mark, I, I'll respect that. Let, let me give it a shot. And so he graciously did. And I did my version. And he ended up casting me. So um, that was that was a thrill too because unlike Fresh Horses, Chocolate War was an independent movie. We shot up in the Seattle area, and um, it was a real labor of love. We just all just filled in and gave 110 percent for Keith, and that was his debut movie as well. Yeah, it must have been interesting working for a director who was primarily known as for his acting at that point. Yeah, yeah, he he was. He was very green, um, but he had a vision. And I all I knew him from was the um, guy in, in Christine, uh, Stephen King's King. <laughs> so, but um, I thought he did a bang-up job, and he, he's a really sweet, 
sweet guy too. And I got to act with and meet one of my idols back then, Bud Court, who's also in the movies. Because one one of my favorite movies is Harold and Maude. And um, it was such a thrill to meet Bud. And he's quite a bit older, of course, and losing his hair. Um, really, really sweet guy. He ended up quitting acting shortly thereafter and opening up, a, I think, a, a florist shop in... Um, I don't know where it was, actually, now that I think of it, but I think around L.A. somewhere, because I think that's where he, he was from. But, yeah, he was, he was a sweet man. Now, am I right in assuming that, you know, you, you had done quite a bit of work to this point, but was your breakout kind of the X-Files when you got to be Eugene Victor Toombs? You know, that was probably one of them. That that was an unpredictable this this business is so crazy. It, it's not. It's never linear. You know, it's it's like serpentine. It's it's it slithers around. It's, it's up and down. It's feast and famine. You don't really you don't have a handle on where your career's going necessarily, especially at the beginning. And so when the X Files happened uh, back in '92, um, it was the first season, and that was, I believe, the third episode. Squeeze was the third episode. And so when I took the role, nobody knew that the X-Files was going to blow up to be what it what it is today. And, um, you know, so I just kind of, I remember my agent calling me and saying, hey, we, got, we have an audition for you for something called The Files of X or something like that. It's a new series for Fox and it's, it's kind of sci-fi thing and and I said, well, what what role is it? And they said, well, it's um it's the guest lead, and and he's a a mutant serial killer who eats human livers. And I was like, okay, do you want to send me the the sides? And they said, well, actually, there aren't any. You, you don't have any lines. Um, it, and so I was just scratching my head over the whole thing. So when I was cast, um, we went up to Vancouver to shoot, and um. And had a great time with David and Jillian. And then, and they were very accessible, by the way. David and I hung out a lot. Um, very funny guy, very dry sense of humor, David. And Jillian's lead is high. And then I got asked to come back to do the sequel of Squeeze called Tombs. And that was at the end of the first season. And at, and at that point, the X-Files had become the X-Files. And David and Jillian were absolutely overwhelmed with the response. And so shooting Squeeze at the beginning of the season and then tunes at the end was a real eye-opener for me because it was like the difference between having a baby and then it having grown up in, you know, three, four short months into this monster um, so it was, it was quite an experience. Yeah, they're bringing the X Files back. I mean, what was your um, your cycle there? Did you hibernate every couple uh, decades? Yeah, I think I, I hibernate every thirty years. There you go. Yeah, it's almost that time. You could come back with this new series. <laughs> you're 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 aging me, Mike. I think my turn on the X Files ended under the escalator. You have been in so many memorable roles over the years. What have been some of your other favorite ones? Obviously, the Green Mile, Percy and the Green Mile was a highlight. 
Um, but there, thereafter, I just, I, I just had such, such fun playing a variety of colorful villains, actually, and, um, and working with some really awesome people. I, after the Green Mile, um, you know, I, I did a character in Bait with Jamie Foxx and David Morse, and then played, um, uh, with Val Kilmer and Salt and Sea. That was, Oh, I love that movie. Isn't that a cool movie? It, yeah, so many great actors in that, and yeah, just that kind of neo-noir flavor to it. Yeah, I thought it was very well done. Not seen by a lot of people theatrically, but I think once it went you know, to DVD, I think a lot of people um, started really shining, taking a shining to it. It's a movie to be seen, though. I thought it was just really fabulously done. Yeah, I've had a lot of, I, you know, I loved playing Ifty and I Am Sam with, with Don Penn. You know, that was a refreshingly a non-villainous role and just such a fun character to try to get underneath. It's my, my wife's in the background here making dinner and she said, that's my favorite. <laughs> she loves Ifty. So yeah, I, I've, I've been blessed. There's been, there's been several, um, highlights but they all they always say you know you look back at the one that sort of just the doors just flew open after and like like when you said was the x-files you know th- that project that sort of started opening the doors. it started but it wasn't until the green mile that once the green mile hit it just it, it was uh, you know it was a game changer and um that that I have to say now, looking back, was probably the the one, you know, the one that opened opened the door, and that was 13 years in the making. You know, that was 13 years of pounding the pavement and doing, you know, um, acting. Yes, but also still, I was still even doing during the X Files. I was still working job jobs. You know, I wasn't making a living as an actor yet. Um, I was just getting sporadic work as an actor and then, you know, supplementing that with, um, with all of my, my job jobs, but the green mile kind of changed all of that. Yeah. That movie. And it still holds up. It is just so terrific. It's very timeless movie. You know, I, I, I remember watching it for the first time. It's a long movie too. It's like three and a half, three, three hours and 40 minutes or something like that. And, and I just remember, you know, when you make a movie and then you see it, it's very difficult to get lost in that movie because you're seeing it from when you made it, from the eyes of when you made it. And so you're, you're remembering funny things that happened, you know, behind the camera. You're remembering how many takes you had to do, the tricks that were, you know, you had to play while you were, you know, while the movie was being shot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of times when you go watch it, that, that distracts you from actually getting involved in the movie. But man, the Green Mile, I got to say, when I watched it, I, I got completely lost. I, I became emotional. And at the end of it, I just felt like I had been like in a vortex of timelessness. It didn't have... It didn't seem long. It didn't seem short. It just seemed like a, a, a unique journey. And I was so, I was so moved by what Frank 
Darabon put together is just just so beautiful. Well, it was such a nice mix of talent, too. I mean, having kind of the the older guard with Tom Hanks and some of these guys who had you know, really made their bones and stuff. And yes, you'd been working for a lot of years, but maybe not a known quantity at that point to middle America. But you and Sam Rockwell and Barry Pepper, who are kind of seen as more of these up-and-comers and just that nice mix of old and new. And, you know, we, we didn't know, I mean... I knew you from Victor Tombs and everything and from the Chocolate War, but, you know, you were like dynamite on screen because you never knew what Percy was going to do because he was just such a little shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I take that as a compliment. Yeah. Oh, was, definitely a compliment. Yeah. He was a little shit. And um, I was I was privileged to uh, to bring him to life. I really liked you in one that I don't know if too many people saw, but uh, The Burrowers. Oh, you saw The Burrowers? Oh, yeah. I actually saw it projected up in Toronto uh, at the International Film Festival up there. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, no, not a lot of people have seen The Burrowers. What a, what a wild movie that was, huh? Yeah. Well, I really like, um, I've seen J.T. Petty, a few of his other films, too, and I really like what he does. Yeah, he was he was another gem to work with because he was so passionate about that movie. And I just, I just loved the combination of, you know, a Western kind of horror. And I thought it was really kind of creepy. I didn't, you know, to be completely honest, and I, I think I even talked to JT about this too. So it's, it's nothing, um, nothing he hasn't heard, but I, I it kind of, the movie kind of drew me in and then, it lost me a bit at the end, I think, because, um, you know, a lot. it happens with a lot of horror movies. You, you, you build up and you don't know what the monster is or what it looks like or anything. And then when it reveals itself, it's somewhat of a letdown. And I kind of felt that with that movie. I didn't really, once the, the burrowers were revealed, it, it, it became less um, uh, horrific to me. And more of, um, I don't know, a, a spectacle, I guess. I mean, it was just very spectacle at the end. But but it was fun. It was fun to do a period piece like that, you know, put on the, um, the goatee and the old the old um, uh, Union uniforms and, and, and act out there in that hot desert, act like a cowboy. Well, I got to say it was a little treat for me, too. I was a big fan of Lost, so seeing you and William Maypother and Clancy Brown in the same movie, I was just like, this is like a little mini Lost reunion here. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? We were lost, and then we were found in the burrowers. Um, yeah, William May- Maypother and, and I, we, we're, we're destined to keep running into each other because we, we not only did Lost and then Burrowers, but ended up, I don't know if you saw the movie Moolah, did you see Moolah? I have heard it. I haven't watched it yet. You should um, track down Moolah. It's M-O-L-A, Moolah, like like money, Moolah. And um, it's this quirky little indie co- comedy film, and and William stars in it, and as as I do, and and um, who else is in it? Um, William uh, Billy Baldwin couple other really faces you'll recognize character actors and yeah you should watch it it's really a cute movie and it's it's a lot of fun and um well yeah william and i uh crossed paths again in that movie 
So I wanted to ask you about Punisher Warzone. How did that project kind of come to you? Well, that's a very interesting uh, story because um, Lexi Alexander, the, the director, and we got to rewind just a little bit because right after um, I did a movie called A Time to Kill um, back in, I don't know, when, when was it, like mid-90s? And right after that movie, or shortly thereafter, I was asked to play a cameo um, in Batman and Robin, and um, I ended up I ended up doing it. And it was just a little tiny forty second cameo uh, with Uma Thurman and Batman and Robin. And I played this sort of uh, the leader of this like gang of golems. They they lived underground. We had our, our faces were painted in neon, and um, and I did the, I did the cameos. I was only on the set for the day. And I don't remember this at all, but apparently one of my gang members was Lexi Alexander because she is prolific in martial arts. And so um, Joel Schumacher wanted to surround, wanted all of the golems that were surrounding me to be, um, uh, you know, to, to be able to move and kind of like um, act, but also be doing their own stunts. And so Lexi was the only female golem in my gang. And what I didn't know is, or at that point in time, is that Joel fired Lexi. He, uh, he thought she wasn't making the grade, I guess. And he kind of had a change of heart about having a, a woman, a female, in the midst of all these males for some reason. I don't know. Anyway... Long story short, Lexi, uh, Joel fired Lexi, and this is the part I don't remember. Lexi claims that I gave her, I, I sent her a card or gave her a note or something and said, so sorry um, that, you know, you had to leave, um, we'll miss you, something like that. I, I, I don't even know because I don't remember. Well, now, fast forward, um, almost what is it, 15 years? <laughs> I get a call at home from Lexi Alexander. Now, I've never, I, we never stayed in touch. I don't, don't even remember who she was. And actually, um, before she called, I got a, a, a call from the, the casting director asking me to come in and audition for uh, this role. And I ended up turning it down because... I wasn't interested in auditioning for it. Lexi called me up shortly thereafter, and she said, I'm so sorry to call you at home, but she said, I need you to play this role. She said, I've been a fan of yours for, for many, many years now, and I'm embarrassed that the casting director calls you to ask you to come in and read for this because that wasn't my intent. She said, I wanted to give you a straight offer. And I'm begging you to reconsider, and I, I just need you to play this role. And we started talking, and that's the point at which she reminded me of this Batman and Robin episode. And she said, do you realize that you were the only person on that set that like actually reached out to me after I was fired? And she said, that meant so much to me. Thank you. And I was like, you're welcome. I'm sorry. I don't remember it, but you're welcome. 
and um, and anyway, that's how Punisher Warzone uh, transpired. And um, I guess the lesson in the story is just be kind, you know, just be kind because you never know <laughs> when it may like come around and, and karma sneaks up on you and kind of gives gives you a gift for uh, unwittingly like being uh, kind and generous to someone else. But, um, but anyway, there we were up in um, M- Montreal shooting Punisher Warzone shortly thereafter. How did you approach the character of Looney Bin Jim? I remember uh, Lexi and I sat, we, we, we sat for hours talking about kind of an evolution with the character. Like we wanted to have a lot of fun with it, um, but she was very enamored as, as I am and was with, um, with how Anthony Hopkins approaches his roles and, and sort of go, goes underneath. And so that, that was my hope and my intent because the whole movie is kind of cartoonish anyway. It's very, very hyper cartoonish. And so I was really desiring to try to bring as much reality to it as possible. And at the same time too, I wanted to um, kind of have this, this evolution of the character, both in, in, in personality and physical disintegration so that when we first meet Looney Bin, um, you know, in the asylum, he's, you know, been on these drugs and he's, you know, his his physicality is intact. And as the movie um, progresses, he's, he becomes more and more unraveled because he's not taking his drugs. So he's getting loonier and loonier and then also because of all of the physical altercations with smacking myself into mirrors and, you know, and, and, and cutting myself and, and then my ultimate fight with um, the Punisher at the end, we just wanted to make a mess out of him at the end. So I kind of had to score the character throughout the script because we didn't shoot in sequence. You know, one day I had to figure out, okay, how how crazy am I on this day and do I have any marks on my body? <laughs> and then the next day we may have to erase some of those marks and I had to kind of work backwards and, you know, get a little uh, uncrazier. Um, but it was, it was a load of fun. Lexi was totally on board with, um, uh, she just gave me, you know, complete reins as far as my look you know, how I wanted to play it. And, um, she, she was, um, delightful in that way. She, she kept a really, um, you know, she was very good at, at keeping her direction of the movie, but allowing her cast to go wherever we needed to go within the perimeters of that direction. What was the atmosphere like on set? Was there a good camaraderie amongst the actors? Absolutely. Yeah. We all, we all had a, a really good time together. Um, D- Dominic was um, <laughs> Dominic was funny because he. I don't. I think when he got cast in the role, he didn't really realize how much how much prosthetics he was going to have to wear, or how long it would take him to put it on and take it off, and how difficult it was for him to eat lunch 
um, through a straw. And so he was fairly miserable re- regarding that during the course of the movie, but he, but he made good light of it. You know, he was, it was always a hum- with, with humor and we'd, we'd tease him a lot at lunch because we were wolfing down our food while he had to sip his through a straw. Um, yeah, we, we all really had a, a wonderful time shooting that movie. Was there a lot of um, improvisation on the, the set or was it pretty well page to screen? I think it was a little bit of both. I really enjoyed adding lines and improv, and that was one of the the coups of Punisher because Lexi allowed that, you know. So little little tiny subtle things like, you know, that that line I say in the asylum, yummy, 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 in my tummy, tummy, tummy. That was something that just came out of me while we were shooting it, and she loved it, so we kept it in. Um, Little things like in the interrogation room where I where I go meow, you know, like a cat, and just little inserts like that. I felt free to to improvise. Um, I don't know if there was a heck of a lot of like freestyle improvisation between the cast members, but like I said, Lexi, I think she kind of just let her actors create their characters on the spot, and that was refreshing. I remember I tried that improvisational style on the set of the Green Mile on my first day of shooting, and Frank's Darabont just slapped me down silly. He's like, what do you think you're doing? And I said, oh, I just thought, you know, this would be interesting to insert here. And he said, um, excuse me, you're going to say the lines that are on the page. You're going to stand where I tell you to stand. And... <laughs> You're going to do what I tell you to do. And the, the, the rebel inside of me was just like uh, going crazy. But, um, but you know what? He was right because he was creating a portrait. He was creating a picture and he had it designed from beginning to end. And so it really depends. It depends on the director. It depends on the, the tenure of the movie. I, I think whether it's a period piece, whether it's not, you know, a lot of lot of factors go into it, but but anyway, yeah, improvisation works sometimes, and sometimes it's frowned upon. <laughs> How would you describe that accent that you're doing in Punisher Warzone? The movie is supposed to take place in New York City, and we did have a dialect coach who was teaching us um, regional New York City. It was it wasn't specific. It wasn't like from Long Island. It wasn't the Bronx or anything like that. So. It was kind of a general regional kind of vibe. You know, at first, I didn't even want to do the New Yorky accent. And I, I begged Lexi. I said, I said, I, don't, I just, I don't really feel it's necessary um, for the movie. And she agreed at first. And then the dialect coach came on and he kind of, he had some good points about keeping it consistent. And so I ended up working with him. And I think, that it's possible, I'm not sure, but I think maybe what you hear in Looney Bin is like um, a, a facsimile of uh, a New Yorky accent with a resistance underneath it. <laughs> so I know that you've been um, a reality TV star for a little while. How difficult is it for you to go from 
being a professional actor into this kind of reality TV style? And is it is there a modicum of acting in there, or do you try to free yourself from that when you, it comes to this to these uh, TV shows that you've been on? There's a modicum of acting in it. I mean, you're not playing a character per se; you're playing yourself. But you know, yeah, you, you kind of amp it up here and there. You, you throw in for some drama. You know, that's what they like. And so um, I wouldn't say it's completely scripted, like you're not given pages or anything like that, but you're definitely given direction, like you're, you're being nudged into certain areas of direction. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's a form of acting, but it's a very um, unusual form of acting. And talk about, talk about improvisation. It's, it's you know, you you are just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. So you just you do what you want and need to do in the moment. What kind of stuff have you been working on lately? Well, I'm gearing up. Uh, I'm going to shoot a movie in the UK in October with a director by the name of, of Michael Redwood. He directed a movie last year called Catherine of Alexandria, a period piece. It was actually Peter O'Toole's last movie before he passed on. He's shooting, a uh, Michael's shooting a thriller. I can't talk a heck of a lot about it because um, I signed a confidentiality agreement, but um, it's a really unique script. Um, and he's looking at, uh, speaking of the X-Files, he was, he was looking at Gillian Anderson, uh, but also possibly Hilary Swank and a, a handful of really cool um, British actors as well um, uh, are, are potentially going to be attached to it. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. We'll be shooting in Wales in October. And, um, Jer- oh, Jeremy Irons, I, I believe he's he's having dialogue with Jeremy um, about it as well. My goodness, I would love to work with him. He is such a treat to watch on screen. Oh, I know. He's one of my favorite actors. Love him. I just I was just going to say I loved him in, um, in his portrayal of, of Humbert Humbert and the, the remake of Lolita. He he's so brilliant in that, and um, you know he's so tragic. <laughs> he just he just plays that tragic so well. I just I just love it. I eat it up. It's got to be interesting for you to have worked for. I mean, you've worked for what twenty some years in the business and just the amount of changes that have happened, even within the last 10 years. I mean, has this whole move to television? I mean, you kind of got one of your breaks in television. Has that changed how you're looking at things and what roles you're going up for? Yeah, kind of, you know, when I started back in the day, I mean, it's so crazy to be, you know, I, I, when you said 26 years, I'm like, what? But you're right. I can actually consider myself a veteran now, I suppose. Um, but when I first started out, I remember there was a definitive line between film and television. And you were either a film actor or a TV actor. And never the two uh, would meet. And, and then all of a sudden, in the past 10 to 15 years, the lines have blurred. And, and now, you know, huge uh, movie stars uh, obviously are are playing in in amazing television series, you know, and Keeper Sutherland in Twenty Four, and um, 
and um, yeah, well, you know, on and on and on. Um, so the lines crossed and and blurred, and now television and and actually the X Files was was a huge part of this um, evolution because when the X Files hit. Um, for the first time, I think, in network TV, when we were starting to see filmic television, we were starting to see television that actually looked like movie quality. And I think that really opened it up as well and started seducing a lot of the, the heavy hitters, not just actors, but directors, you know, into TV. And now more than ever, I mean, television is the, the, the wild, wild west. You know, especially with cable and Netflix. You know, one of my favorite um, uh, series is House of Cards. And, and there you go, Kevin Spacey, you know, a huge movie actor playing in, in a TV series on Netflix. I mean, who would have thought? And so it's the wild, wild west. Of it. it's, it's the frontier. It just keeps blowing up, blowing open into a new evolution and it's very exciting time right now and um so yeah it's less about man i can't you know i want to be in that next movie and more about you know what what's exciting and a lot of it has to do with tv a lot of a lot of exciting stuff on television right now american horror story is another one of my favorites i would love to be on that could be so thrilling to be on a show like that, but you know we could sit here and list several thousands of them now. So there are just tons of of um, awesome television going on right now. Well, hey, you know if they can't bring back Victor Tombs, maybe they could at least bring back Looney Ben Jim and uh, the Daredevil uh, show because I hear he's fighting Punisher next season. Oh wow, that would be cool. <laughs> Comic book characters never die. They seem to be uh, dominating the, the, the filmic world now, too, you know. Now, back to our show. back thanks to director lexi alexander and jerry conway for taking the time to talk to us this week we're talking about punisher warzone the second time we've talked about one of those so-called marvel movies on the show the first one was uh what we like to call pr that's pre-rob and that discussion was with albert pune's film captain america so punisher warzone comes out 2008 banner year for marvel in terms of the release of iron man kicking off that whole avengers franchise which is still with us and uh, by that time however there had already been quite a few successful titles from marvel such as the x-men films and also even spider-man of course uh, the original set directed by the hometown boy sam raimi so marvel movies gentlemen do you have a favorite do you have a top five list So my top five Marvel movies, I'm going from – actually, these are all fairly in the same category, on that same ballpark, but um, I'll just go ahead and, and list them off here. So number five, Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier. One of those movies where it's a superhero movie, but there's so much more stuff happening with it that I thought it was, it was terrific. Spider-Man 2, 
the one with Doc Ock, not the Amazing Spider-Man 2. I'm talking about the Sam Raimi film, the one with Alfred Molina and Tobey Maguire. I really love this film, and it really kind of captured what was going on post 9-11 in New York, kind of that spirit of the time and everything. But it just, it's still, it has so much heart, and it really just shines through for me as being a, a really terrific movie as well as a terrific comic book movie. Number three for me, Blade. I watch Blade all the frickin' time. I don't really care for Blade 2 a lot, which is strange, because you would think with Guillermo del Toro directing that it would be all about it. I actually like three more, which is kind of weird. Even with uh, Ryan Reynolds being in there, cracking wise all the time, I just, something about the team dynamic and stuff I dig, but really it all goes back to Blade. Um, still so good, and I still kind of wish that I could go to a vampire rave sometime. Uh, number two, the Avengers. Say what you will about the Avengers. Yes, it made 190 quadrillion dollars or whatever. Uh, it, there's a reason for that, and not just because it's an Avengers film. Really well made, really well put together, and I, I really appreciate what the writing was doing with that film, the building of the team and everything. Um, I thought it's great, and it's one that I will go back to all the time. And that final battle in New York, fucking A. I'll watch it any day of the week. And number one, Robbie just mentioned this one, Iron Man, the John Favreau film. I thought it was absolutely brilliant casting putting robert downey jr in this one as tony stark that playboy who's got a little bit more going on has dealt with some demons when it comes to alcoholism and we've got downey with his history of drug abuse just really well done and i've heard that the script wasn't 100 percent there when they were doing it but you've got so many talented actors and especially so many actors that can just kind of riff and do things and i think that that kind of spirit really comes through with the film as far as it's it's a looser film but just that energy of those actors really shines through how about you rob what's your list well um my list I have to say, I haven't been able to see all of the recent ones. I know that the uh, Captain America movies are quite good. I think I saw Thor. Uh, I've been kind of hit or miss on some of the more recent ones. I know that when Captain America was on Netflix, it was in my queue, and then it disappeared, so I never got a chance to see it. But I would start at five with Blade. That's one of those you know late 90s ones that kind of came out of nowhere for me, and I was like, wow, that's that was really good. Uh, the first X-Men I thought was quite good. Uh, I really liked the whole thing with uh, Magneto and using sort of the Holocaust and all of that to explain his sort of feeling towards humanity and the separation between the, the mutants and the humans, which to me I've always seen as as a take on, on race and specifically when it was created in the early 60s. Of course, the civil rights movement and all of that was getting its, its, um, its footing in terms of the popular culture and also on – TV and in the press. Number three, I'd say the Avengers. I thought the Avengers was quite good. Uh, I had my my cousin who I, I guess maybe this is a DNA thing, and she lives over in Scotland. I think she saw the Avengers like twenty times in the theater. I go, what what is this? Like, I I understand my obsession with certain films, and of course I've seen Pulp Fiction in the theater like thirteen times, but she really went nuts for the Avengers. I was like, it was good, but I wasn't going to see it twenty eight times. Um, I liked uh, at number three, I'd say Guardians of the Galaxy. 
I thought uh, Guardians was fun, sort of a lighter version of the Avengers to a certain extent. And, of course, uh, there is a Lloyd Kaufman cameo in there. Small, but still nice. And then also James Gunn, a trauma alum, who went on to do some pretty great work with Guardians. As a matter of fact, I would say if uh, you like Guardians, go watch the specials, which I really enjoyed from him. Sort of a take on... You know, like Mystery Men and and all of those uh, Watchmen kind of things like that. An idea of, you know, what if you're not the greatest superhero group? Maybe if you're like the seventh or eighth one down the list of uh, superhero groups. And then uh, number one, uh, like you, I'd say Iron Man. But the one thing that I really liked about Iron Man not only was the obvious nod back to Downey's own life, was at the same time when Iron Man came out, we had been through... Afghanistan and Iraq for several years and there is really this sort of dichotomy of and uh, discussion in Iron Man about the military industrial complex to a certain extent and sort of you know who benefits and why and what happens when the man who creates the weapons you know is harmed by his own product to a certain extent so I I thought that putting all of that in to Iron Man at that time was really just sort of a great, great discussion to have at that time. And to put it into a big uh, pop culture film like that was, uh, I guess, rather brave, too. I would say in terms of Marvel movies, Iron Man, the first one, I really like. But my favorite comic book film of all time, if we want to get into that, I'd have to say is The Dark Knight. I think the the second in the Christopher Nolan trilogy is probably the most direct uh, discussion on post 9/11 America in terms of surveillance and rendition and you know the ideas of terrorism and you know some men just want to watch the world burn and and all of that stuff and the security state and everything. I mean, there's really a lot going on in the Dark Knight that the uh, the first one and the and the third film in that series just can't even come close to. Dark Knight is what we were hoping um, that first Batman movie in the 80s would be because by the time that movie came out, we'd already had the, the, the new comic books with a darker, wetter Batman and, you know, with Gotham and you you wanted that movie. And then we instead we got Tim Burton's movie, which was just kind of half TV show, half what the comic book was. So, yeah, by the time that movie came out, I was like, this is what we wanted back in the 80s. This is what I was hoping for as a kid. So I, I'll go. I'll speed through. But I wanted I had also a list of my top five least favorite. So I'll give you guys a second to do that. So top five favorite is Kick-Ass, Spider-Man 3, because it's Sam Raimi, being Sam Raimi, and it's weird, and it's nerdy, and everybody hates it, and I love it for that. All the stuff that people hate about it. Iron Man, I love, of course, Fantastic Four, the Roger Corman version, and uh, because the other ones suck so bad. And Spider-Man 2 is another great film. So my top five worst, The Punisher with Thomas Jane, either Hulk, pick your choose, uh, Iron Man 2 is terrible. He's eating at a diner most of the time, talking to other superheroes like it's swingers. Jesus Christ. You know, just go out and punch somebody. That's all I want to see. Howard the Duck was, you know, obviously that should be number one. It's so terrible. And then the two Fantastic Four movies that had already come out with uh, Michael Chiklis. What a terrible piece of shit. There was just two disappointments, like the Hulk. They just messed it up twice. And I guess they're just going darker with this new one with tone and everything. But. I don't know. I mean, I'll see it again because I'm a nerd, but how many times can they fool us with this crap? Yeah, that first Fantastic Four movie is just garbage. Just garbage. I mean, especially the everything just happens to happen on that fucking bridge where it's just like, 
you know, oh, Dr. Doom shows up and this car goes over and all this. I mean, it's just it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, do you guys have a top five uh, worst uh, or at least three or the ones you never liked? Stay away from. I'm trying to remember because I think I've purged them out of my memory. Uh, the one that I know I was very disappointed by is uh, Ghost Rider because I like Ghost Rider as a comic book. And I thought this was just Nick Cage at his, you know, most cagiest lately. And it, I was like, man, you could have done so much more with that. And I just kind of felt disappointed by it. Uh, I never saw any of the uh, Fantastic Four ones that they did recently. You know, the Silver Surfer one and all that. I didn't see any of those. Oh. I, I, I saw the Ang Lee uh, Hulk with uh, Ed Norton. I saw that one. No, no, no. He didn't do, he wasn't in the Ang Lee version. Oh. Am I he, getting him confused? Yeah. You got him confused. That was oh, Eric, Eric Bonner. Bonner. Yeah. yeah. That was the other great actor who did a shitty yeah. film. Oh. They were the good God, day. that was horrible. Yeah. See, it was so good, I, I mixed them up. That's how good <laughs> I feel like Ghost Rider only gets a pass because it's a Nick, Nicolas Cage movie, and you should know it's going to be that bad. You know, it, I kind of liked it, yeah. You kind of figure you lower your See. standards from a Marvel movie to a Nick Cage movie. See, but the thing was is that as a fan of the comics when I was a kid, it, it – that's what it was. So if I would have went in cold without the knowledge, I think maybe I would have embraced it more of it since I went in and I'm like, oh, it's Nick Cage chewing the scenery. But the thing that's funny is we talked about this on our Bad Lieutenants episode is, you know, it's him and um, Eva Mendez who are both in um, Bad Lieutenant Protocol New Orleans and they chew the scenery in there too. But for some reason, I love it. <laughs> For an song, but I don't love it in the Marvel movie. I know that Daredevil gets a lot of shit. I actually like Daredevil, and there's an extended Daredevil version, which I like even more. But I have to say, though, that all the hate that has been heaped upon Elektra is completely justified. I really have tried to watch that movie a few times now, and it just it it's horrible. I cannot stand Electra. I can't believe that's a movie. It feels like, remember when it was Conan the Barbarian, then it was Red Sonia? They just did like a, a cheaper female version with a, with a less expensive star. I, I was looking at a list for this episode, and I was like, Electra really was a movie. Wow. Yeah, yeah it really was. And they had animated tattoos that would come out and kill people. It was kind of crazy that way. Yeah, I know you're not a big fan of the Thomas Shane version. It's kind of funny, though. He actually returned as the Punisher at one point a few years after. He was in the Punisher 2004. We're talking about the Punisher 2008. We're talking about the good version of the Punisher. And then there was a short that was made called Punisher Laundry Day, which I actually thought was going to be a comedy short with that name <laughs> but it's not it's uh well it, at least it wasn't funny to me it's just this little short of the punisher doing laundry and these oh my god i can't believe how many street thugs are out picking on people on this one particular block and at one point ron perlman shows up and he it kind of reminded me of um I think it was Wayne's World 2 when the one guy's giving the really bad performance and uh, Mike Myers stops the scene and is like, can we get somebody good in here to do this? And they bring in Charlton Heston to do it. It kind of felt like they had already gone through the bad 
actor and they said, let's get Ron Perlman in here. Ron, can you step in and give us a little speech about how you once were trying to protect the neighborhood? And it's a little much. Let's just put it that way. It's 10 now. I think it's 18 minutes maybe. And eh, check it out and do that rather than watching the entire first Punisher because – I don't think I'll ever go back and watch that one again. The, the the one with Thomas Jane, if you can go online and find the clip where he's fighting in the bathroom, it's amazing. It's about like three or four minutes straight fighting through different rooms in an apartment building. So they, this huge, huge, huge guy just throws him through walls one after another. And it, it's a really great – I was working on a talk show at the time, and we, we couldn't get any guests, and we got the big bouncer guy who was like some Polish wrestler or something. And they sent in two clips. Like it was really the first half of that scene and the second half of that scene, and we just played both clips. We had a, we played like a minute and a half of clips because it was so good. And the guy didn't speak any English, but yeah, that was the best clip I've ever seen on a talk show, and uh, that made me go see buy my own you know bullshit and go see the film. Um, but if you can find that scene on on YouTube, it's definitely worth seeing. You just saved yourself six bucks, <laughs> right? In two hours, hey, John Travolta. Like, why is he in that scene? What? Did he lose a bet? Did he? Did his porch fall down? He's like, shit. Now I gotta get a new deck. I don't. I don't know what he was doing in that movie. Yeah, that was bad. He played the bad guy. He could have played the Punisher. That would have been badass. John Travolta trying to be, you know, this because then he has to use. He's not really built like um, the Punisher in this film, but he he just would have to use his brain more and more guns, and that would have been more fun. What's well, funny because he's played a badass in certain things. What was like that what? movie um, from? <sighs> Paris with love. What was the was name he a of that bad guy? Name? Though, yeah. Well, yeah. He's a yeah, bad guy. I looked guy to have him that, play but... like. I don't. I don't know why he never did it in his height. Like maybe he got too old by the time he decided to do it. But you know, for Hollywood, but he would have been a good, good guy, kind of like um, Reacher, uh, the Tom Cruise. Oh, the Jack, Jack Reacher. Reacher yeah, I yeah. feel like that would have worked for him. That would have been kind of cool to watch. And I want to say Travolta's got some height on him, and I know that's something that people are complaining about about Jack Reacher because they're like, "Oh yeah, this guy's six foot four, and Tom Cruise is what like five two, five one, something like that." So they weren't buying it. I personally love the Jack Reacher film, and I'm hoping that they're going to do some more. But I just know, again, talking about how much your character looks like either the comic book or the description from the book. I was okay not having read the book and not having that mental image of this guy. But even if it was a graphic novel and he was this huge hulking guy, like, okay, I'll give it a shot. Like, you know, it made sense having, you know, speaking of comic book movies, having uh, Mickey Rourke play Marv in the Sin City films and what they did with his visage and everything maybe wouldn't have set, had had the same impact having Tom Cruise play Marv. But again, you can shoot things differently and whatever, but yeah, it's, um, I, 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 to go back to what you were saying, I would love to see Travolta as kind of an action hero, uh, type role. His strength isn't his strength. It's, uh, like Batman, it's his guns, it's his weapons and his brain and, and that he's so angry. So, I mean, that is what drives him. That's what makes him, that's the superpowers is that, he has an endless arsenal and that he's a, you know, his whole family's destroyed. So he has no morals and he wants to kill everybody. And I feel like even if John Travolta is not like, you know, built like, uh, like Bruce Willis was or something, you know, he can still get away with, with that kind of character. And I think we would have, I don't know why he was like quote unquote playing against type, but he was just being flamboyant. And that's not really against type. 
as far as we suspect. Yeah, he's being the guy from Broken Arrow again. Yeah, I don't know why he keeps off. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he keeps doing it over and over, and right that it's something different. But it's yeah, let's let's have him play it play it straight. No pun intended. Well, that's the thing that you bring up about the Punisher and why the Punisher was interesting to me as a kid, as a comic book reader. And that's the reason why I like Batman as well, is that I don't really consider them superheroes. They're they are vengeful, you know, vigilantes, which is a overuse of words who, you know, are driven by something in their past that went wrong and in the case of batman he's willing to work within the system he doesn't kill anyone he brings people in but the punisher's just like forget it the system doesn't work i'm taking it into my own hands so that's really the big difference between the two but their origin stories in a lot of ways are similar in that you know obviously you know bruce wayne his parents were killed and then he became an orphan but Frank Castle, his family was murdered in front of him in Central Park, and that's what led to his vengeance. So there's this whole thing about family and the destruction of family and and getting payback for it in a larger sense in terms of trying to clean up society. They just have their own ways of doing it. And I think in a way that might actually be – and there have been crossovers before between DC and Marvel, but it would be interesting to see these two vigilantes kind of face off against each other as uh, – you know, how would they deal with that in terms of trying to deal with each other on the moral level? The Punisher, you know, the Punisher starts as a villain and then kind of moves into being a hero, but he's always walking that line. You know, is the Punisher a hero or villain? Is it just a matter of your perspective? You know, if you're all about, um, God, am I about to date myself? You know, Bernard Getz kind of stuff. If you're all about subway justice kind of stuff, is he your hero or is he more of a villain? I mean, the guy dresses in black. He's got a skull on his chest. He murders everyone that he comes across who he thinks deserves it. He's this kind of sin eater type character. But what do you guys think? Is he a good guy or a bad guy or something else? I think Punisher in this case is, is a good guy until he accidentally kills the cop. Because I think he thinks he's a good guy. And, and we're so used to these type of films and Batman and such that... We were, oh yeah, he's a good guy because he's killing only the people that we want to get. And the cops too are like, listen, let him go. He's just gonna let him kill everybody. He's just gonna save us the trouble. And um, he is until he kills him, and then he has to redeem himself. And at the end, spoiler alert, he redeems himself. I feel like that was his driving. Now it, he isn't. This movie isn't about him avenging his family. Now it's about him righting a wrong. I mean, for me, I see him as, and it's interesting when he was created in the like mid, early mid seventies, right, seventy four, so like forty years ago. And to me, I look at the character much like I look at Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. There's obviously something wrong with him mentally, but he's out there to try and you know clean the streets. He believes that he has this sort of like right vengeance that's going to you know make the world a better place and probably gets lauded for it in certain circles but in other ways you're like do you really want to embrace that is and and if you do you might want to take a shower afterwards which is sort of the moral dilemma that i think the character kind of puts in your head for rooting for him it's like should i really be rooting for this guy i think it's really smart that they're going to be using him next season on daredevil the netflix version of daredevil um i think that it's good to use these characters where you can't really pinpoint who they are what they are 
and kind of get a little bit more of their feeling because no matter what Frank Castle thinks at the beginning of Punisher Warzone, the world is not black and white. And it's nice that we have a character who is getting these kind of shades of gray throughout this. And I think we'll get more of that as we go forward with the Netflix series. So let's go ahead. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. My name's Wilson. You wrote me about my daughter. This bloke she was bunked up with. Terry Valentine. What's he got to say for himself? You tell him! You tell him I'm coming! Tell him I'm coming! Jenny never told you about her dad. What dad? When I was in prison for nine years, he was released last month. As long as nobody can connect anything to me. That's right, Wilson's coming. We're going to be talking about Steven Soderbergh's The Limey next week. Until then, we want to thank our special guest co-host, Adam Spiegelman, for coming on the show. Adam, this is your first time that we've had you on here uh, where you're not talking about a Paul Bartel film. How does it feel to uh, break out of your comfort zone a little bit there, sir? Yeah, it felt good. It was good to watch a movie with actual lighting and uh, good sound (laughs) and foley. Yeah, it was was a nice, nice change. Uh, so what have you been up to over at Probably Resents? We uh, have a really good interview with um, this guy, Daniel Solinger. I, did, I split it up into two, and he does a lot of low-budget films, horror films, cult um, Christian films, and vanity projects, and then, and then a lot of rap films as well. So we talk about, um, there's one episode called Religious, Religious Films, Vanity Projects, and Cinematic Immunity, and we talk about what why make a vanity project like he's trying to make a good movie and i'm saying the argument is shouldn't you just make whatever movie the person who hired you wants you to make you know so that's interesting and then just how he came up uh there's another episode called daniel solinger can produce anything and just how he moved up from college student to doing rap videos and then making movies and that's um that's one of the latest episodes and that's a really good one he's just really interesting and tadia sui who uh was a producer on leno has an amazing story on how he went from newspaper reporter to TV producer in like one day. Oh, wow. Oh, another one. Sorry. Uh, is episode called from PA to director in one day. That's the episode you guys should listen to. Um, Jeremy Sklar was a PA on one of those B movies uh, on a vanity project. And he went and became the producer and he kind of explains how vanity products work. So that's really interesting. So that's it. Thank you guys. I still listen to your show all the time. It's uh, uh, it's the best show. Don't tell uh, me that, but it's the best movie show I, I listen to. It's really great. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate yeah, it. Anytime. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I'll do a romantic comedy next time if you need it. And where should people go to keep in touch with you, sir? So go to uh, proudlyresents.com or you can email me your favorite cult film and we'll review it or suggestions for interviews at uh, reachadam at mac.com. 
Well, thanks again, Adam, for coming on the show. We'll be sure to link over to ProudlyResents.com via our website, projection-booth.com. We also want to thank folks for listening. Now, we don't often do this, but we have to stoke the fires every once in a while. I wanted to bring it to folks' attention that we've got a button over on our website, projection-booth.com. That button has a simple word on it, just one word. The word is donate. What does that mean? What, what does that word mean, Mike? I don't. What's that mean? I don't, I don't, I'll tell you what it means. I don't know what it means. It means that we're shilling for some of your hard-earned cash. Not yours, Rob, but no. for the listeners' hard-earned cash. No, I can't afford it. As cheaply as we try to do this program, there's still costs involved. We've got the hosting fees, membership to the IMDB Pro. We've got hookers, Rob's heroin habit, all that. So we're going to have to ask you to dig deep. Go over to that button there at projection-booth.com. Click on the button, the one that says Donate, and consider what you can give us. Then you take that, you double it, and you pony up some bucks. Thanks in advance. Thank you.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.